1: Sir Criston drew his longsword from its scabbard. As you will it. We can begin here, the four of us. One of me against the three of you. Will that be enough to make a fight of it? Fire and blood. Finally, he drew his sword. Sansa heard someone gasp. Sir Boros and Sir Marin
0: moved forward to confront him, but Sir Barristan froze them in place with a look that dripped contempt. Have no fears, sirs. Your king is safe. No thanks to you. Even now, I could cut through the five of you as easy as a dagger cuts cheese. Game of Thrones, Sansa 5.
1: Yeah, welcome back, everybody, my fellow Westorians. We are here with another Tuesday live stream. We have these from time to time when we have a topic prepared. We like to have guests whenever possible as well. And with that in mind, with me as always is Asheia. But today we have a special guest whose voice you've already heard reading that second quote. Jeff Hartline, aka Brendan B Fish. Welcome back to History of Westeros, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's funny. Like, remember when we started this like years ago, seven years ago?
0: No, we were doing the Battle of Ice podcast <laughs> way right. back then when we were sure the Winds of Winter was coming out in 2014. And, <laughs> and of course it did. And so we, all of our theories we were talking about in those early live streams, I guess they weren't even live streams. They, they, they were live streams. All those, those theories, were, yeah. they, they've come true now, which has been nice to have all the confirmation that our Battle of Ice <laughs> theories are all 100% <laughs> accurate. Um it's awesome. It's great. It's good stuff. And uh yeah, it's, it's like, it's... Cool. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say it's so mean for you to tease everybody about how we have copies of The Winds of <laughs> Winter and nobody else does, but <laughs> uh, but that's because you're George R. Martin. That's I think true. Is, uh, that rumor is is becoming closer and closer to confirmed. Oh yeah, you can tell as, as I get older
0: and my like stubble starts to go gray, and like you know as I'll, I'll become George R. Martin slowly and surely as time goes on. But yeah, uh, as he was saying, I'm Jeff. I'm better known as Brennan Beefish. I have uh, have a podcast called The Not a Cast Podcast. It's a podcast that I co-host with Emmett Booth, better known as Poor Quentin, in which we go through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. And currently, we are lollygagging behind you all, which are, you guys are in a sprint on the way to the end of A Storm of Swords. We are way back in Catelyn's third chapter in A Clash Kings, the chapter we just recorded last night. And um, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure coming back on. It was, it was nice yeah, seeing really. you a couple of weeks ago, too, when I was down, down, down your way in the American South.
1: That's right. We got to hang out in person and have some dinner, all of us here when right before Sean and Rita moved to well, Rita already lived in Colorado, but before what Sean moved with Rita to Colorado. South. The American South. Yeah. Y'all. Good old Atlanta. Good old <laughs> Hotland. No, we don't call it Hotland. <laughs> Only people outside of Atlanta call it Hotland. But yeah, it's so cool to have you on. And this is a topic we've we've wanted to do for a while. This is a, a great theory slash comparison that's emerged over... You know, I guess it's it's not something that came out right away after uh, Dance with Dragons, partly because so much of it depends on the, the side material like the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood that's uh, helped these comparisons come together. But we're not just focusing on the parallels between the two. That's a big part of it. We're going to explore them individually as well. That's a part of it. Uh, obviously, even when there's characters that have a lot in common, they have plenty that isn't in common. So we're going to talk about things that... They, that are separate from them, things that are different, as well as things that are similar. And because we know Cole's life all the way through, a big question, of course, is, does Cole's endgame predict Barristan's? Hmm. Uh, we so we're going to wor- think about that as well. And if we have time, we're going to have a bonus comparison mm-hmm. of Barristan and Serwin of the Mirror Shield, uh, because there's a lot to do with that. There's a lot uh, of meat on those bones. And if uh, we don't have time for it, we'll do that some other time. <laughs> A couple of quick announcements. We've got Dance of the Dragons Part 2 is out. That's with Radio Westeros. I bring that up because, of course, it is re- relevant to Kristen Cole. He's a big part of that. And Jeff, you guys are doing uh, Monday streams now, at least for the time being. Is that right? We are, yeah. With
0: the uh, current quarantine happening around the world, especially in many parts of the United States and hopefully all the parts of the United States soon enough, uh, we are doing a, a weekly stream for all of our episodes as, as long as the quarantine lasts. So if you guys enjoy these live streams. Uh, we are, we're basically, as, as we often say in the other cast, we're basically the, uh, calling back to our progenitors, our fathers, like in the fandom, namely yourself, doing live streams seven, <laughs> eight years ago. And we're doing it now in 2020. You know, you've, you've, you've set the standard and now we have to attempt to attain and achieve that. Because you guys are doing like almost one to two live streams a week and now, we're on the catch up again. We're still lollygagging behind, but yeah, we've. been... <laughs> so we're we're doing these these episodes weekly now as, as a live cast and uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, hopefully, not too too long, and we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. But we're really enjoying it so far. We just did a Catelyn three last night.
1: Yeah, yeah, you guys were great. I was on there for, on that for a while. You, you're you're too kind. You guys are fantastic. Your analysis is, is different, but every bit is good. in my in in, uh, in my opinion, and I think if you, you anybody who hasn't checked them out,
2: to, to barely being able to articulate anything.
1: You can see that clearly why I wouldn't be, you know, if I can't even speak in complete sentences, then (laughs) then you can see why. uh, Maybe it's time to check out someone else. No. (laughs) Speaking of during the quarantine, we have our Friday game streams going. We're also going to do them on Wednesday. Sometimes they'll be a little different. We've got a few surprises planned there, but that's just a little fun thing that we can keep recurring to to hang out with everybody and uh, while while people are spending more time at home. And finally... Finally, finally, I finished Jenny's song. Yes. Yay! <laughs> I, it's already, it's it's been produced. So the minute this stream ends, I'll be uploading it to Patreon and SoundCloud and sharing it around social media. Thanks to our ben engineer for uh, editing it and uh, putting it together. I did the uh, recording on Sunday with a lot of help from Ashea. So we'll start with some surface level comparisons just to set the stage, just to show you all, maybe some of you aren't familiar with just how many similarities there are between these two characters. And then we'll get further deep into these comparisons with more detail. Let's just lay this out to start off with. Appearance-wise, Cole has... They both have pale eyes. Cole's are green. Barristan's are blue. One has light hair. One has dark hair. Maybe that's meant to be kind of a a yin-yang thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just a coincidence. They were both pretty much the best knight of their generation. Uh, Incredible tournament champion. Both from the marches. They're both uh, the, the sons of, uh, you know, from that area, the Dornish marches in the Stormlands. Uh, Kristen Cole was born at Blackhaven, and Barriston got his nickname, the Bold, at a tournament at Blackhaven. Both of them were named to the Kingsguard exactly at age 23. Hmm. Both w- were Lord Commander twice Cole for Viserys and then Aegon II, and then Barriston for Robert and Danny. Now, of course, Barriston was in the Kingsguard before Robert, but he wasn't Kingsguard before Robert. One has the nickname the Kingmaker, one the Kingbreaker. Hand to the king, hand to the queen. Hmm. Cole, uh, Cole rules his hand while Aegon Second is badly hurt and in hiding. Kind of similar to Barrison ruling while Danny is missing on Drogon after Daznax pit, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially given the, the, the rumors of what happened to Danny, which she's all burned up, and, which is what happened to Aegon II. <laughs> Septon Eustace says Cole offered to run off with Rhaenyra across the narrow sea, pledging his sword to a merchant prince. Versus Barristan signing up for Danny via Illyria, who's a merchant prince of sorts. So that's uh, you know that's sort of similar. Now we get into some of the personality aspects that are maybe a little where some of these comparisons can really get a little more meaty. Cole, we have this whole thing about Cole rejecting Rhaenyra romantically. Now there's not going to be any kind of romance between Barristan and <laughs> Danny. The age gap is too big, and Danny's not going to be interested. Barristan isn't going to think that. It just there's that's just not happening. But you had some thoughts on where some of this might have landed elsewhere. Yeah, so I was I was thinking about
0: this, and uh one of the great things that George did in Dance of Dragons is that he had Barrison as a POV, introduced him as a point-of-view character. And the reason why is, is complicated, but one of the big reasons is that he ended up being the sword, literally, that slice the he's knot that he was working at and entangling. Throughout the uh, period from 2009 onwards to about 2011. So, in Barrison's internal monologue and his thoughts, he has this sort of fascination, shall we say, with a character by the name of Ashara Day. I don't know if you, have you guys ever heard of her? I, I mean,
1: <laughs> first, yeah. mi- first time I've heard of her. No, first no. time,
0: yeah, same, same for me. But yeah, yeah. so I was, I was sort of thinking that of Barrison in Selmy admiring Ashara from afar, but every having the guts to do thing with Ashara looking to quote-unquote, Chad Stark. I mean, it's, a, it's a Stark that we don't know whose identity it is. Uh,
1: <laughs> Chad Stark. <laughs> so he's he's
0: very, like, he's he seems upset about this and upset about his inability to actually approach Ashara and introduce some romance with her. And I'm just going to throw this out here. I'm not saying this is something that I believe in, necessarily, because I like you, I don't think there's going to be any actual romance between Daenerys and Barriss and Selmy. But... There is something strange about the way that Barristan is regarding Danny when in his POV chapters in the King Break, for instance, he says or he thinks rather sometimes when the Queen looked at him, he felt as if he were looking at Ashara's daughter. And then there's an ellipsis right after that dot dot dot. You're know, like, hmm, what, what is Barristan actually going with there? And hmm. maybe that is emphasizing that Barristan is feeling something a little bit more than chaste courtly love for Danny. And I was thinking about this in comparison to another character that you may have heard of called Littlefinger, and another one called Sansa Stark. I yeah. think you're bringing up these
1: characters I've never heard of. I, mean, I know, it's
0: weird. I, I it, it's, <laughs> it's in one of the world books, I think. But no, I think... Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the Suspect Martins, anyways. Um, but I... <laughs> I do think about that, about Littlefinger treating Sansa and calling her like Cat's daughter and having this kind of weird relationship with Sansa Stark where George has talked about that sometimes Littlefinger looks at Sansa and he sees his own daughter. Sometimes he looks at her and sees a younger version of Catelyn Catelyn Tully. And sometimes he looks at her and sees a grown-up version of Catelyn Tully too. So it's kind of this kind of weird relationship. Again, I'm not saying that Barriss is necessarily Mm -hmm. thinking that, but I am saying that it was possibly included in the narrative to kind of lead us as readers to question Barristan's relationship to Daenerys and how he actually feels about her.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think it also is a uh, echoes of of what's going on with with Jorah Mormont, who's obviously a big part of this same arc with Danny and and Barristan, which is that you know, the way she finds out that he's into her is him saying, oh, yeah, my ex-wife Liness looked like you. Which mm-hmm. is kind of similar to this this take from Barristan is you talking about someone that you were into and then mention that someone else who looks just like that person. And you're like, okay, so you're into that person too? Is that what you're saying? Because <laughs> right. they're so similar? Yeah, so that's a really good catch. I hadn't thought of that. But of course, the point with Kristen Cole is we don't know, and that's something we're going to get into, whether... Kristen approached Rainier, or Rainier approached Kristen, and how that all went. There's disputed information there, and that's something that we are not going to have in the Song of Ice and Fire, because we have these people's point of views. We're going to know pretty sure, I think, how they feel about each other, with some exceptions. I mean, we're not going to ever get inside Jorah's head, but we're not too terribly worried about doing that. But Barriston, you know, we're going to get more from him, and uh, we may get some more information. And, you know, maybe related to that is Barristan not liking Dario, but eh, that's not saying much, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the
0: idea that Kristen Cole in that in the first meeting where, you know, the first bloodletting is, occurs in the Dance of the Dragons, where he kind of like, uh, Kristen Cole echoes Barristan's British view on the Queen's lover, declaring that they will turn the Red Keep into a brothel. No man's daughter will be safe, nor any man's wife, even the boys. We know what Laenor was. I mean, that's the, the Laenor-Dario comparison I'm not saying is firm. But it is at least something that we can look as potential link between these two characters in their regard for the Queen's love interest, so to speak.
1: I think you could make a pretty strong comparison between Dario and Damon. I mean, hmm. as far as their kind of brutal, bloody personalities and just being real kind of arrogant <laughs> about their ability. <laughs> you know, things like that, maybe, and being kind of handsome. Well, I don't think Dario, a lot of people don't think Dario's handsome, but Danny clearly does. <laughs> Gold tooth, baby. Yeah, gold tooth. <laughs> so, uh yeah, he's got that grill going. Cole also did not like Rainier's lover breakbone. So when when they had their falling out for whatever reason, he really seemed to make a special example out of broken bones as his mm-hmm. nickname became <laughs> after Cole was through with him. I mean, the tournament's back then must have been a little different, I swear. Cole f- fights Damon uh, Damon Targaryen in a tournament, and Damon's apparently wielding Dark Sister in a tournament. Like, what is that? And now, and then you have Cole beating him despite that, with knocking the morning using his Morning Star to knock the sword from his hand. And then he takes that same Morning Star and, and beats Rainier's lover with it, <laughs> breaks several of his bones. <laughs> so this guy was a was a big deal in uh, in a fight, and that's also true with Barristan. Although Barristan may be a little more honorable, I'm not, but. This is a thing we need to, need to be keeping aware of the whole time. What we know about Kristen Cole comes through us through history. That's why I'm making this point about Barrison and Danny and POVs. We have this insight into their personality that we will never have for Kristen Cole. And given all the disputed information, uh, near, when we finish going through Kristen Cole's life, we're going to look at it and try to make a case that he was misunderstood. I don't know if we'll be able to sell that. <laughs> but we're going to try. <laughs> I
0: mean, I, I think I think you make a great point. I mean, I think we we have Barrison's point of view, which, interestingly enough, normally when, you, when characters get a point of view, they become more sympathetic. You know, Jamie Lannister being probably the biggest example when you get his point of view in A Storm of Swords. Instead of him being an out-and-out villain, we start to understand and sympathize with him. And there's a this idea in the fandom which I don't necessarily agree with, that that Jamie's on a redemption arc. Interestingly for Barrison, it's kind of a little bit different. When we get his point of view, he becomes a little bit less noble and virtuous than he is. I do think that he has the honor going for him, but that honor at this, at this for the sake of some of the royals that he ends up supporting and ends up defending does kind of lend itself to some questions of moral ambiguity that is inherent in Barrison's characterization before we get his point of view chapters in the of Dragons, but really becomes clear afterwards. And so I love this idea of thinking about Kristen Cole as being kind of filtered through these maester or dwarf perspectives or mushroom was the court joster or court jester. There we go. That's the word I'm looking <laughs> for. Yeah. And uh, so we have this biased point of views coming forward, but we, if he had his point of view, would he come across more like Barriston, more like Jamie? Who is he actually, who is, who's this guy actually underneath of all of the layers of history and bias that George is embedding into fire and blood and the world of ice and fire? It's
1: a question. That's a great, yeah, great take. And, and it's it's a, it's just something really important in the real world. You have all these people that our history remembers them a certain way. And if we actually knew those people, you got to figure at least some of them would be a lot different than the way they were represented in history, at least some of them. You know, that's that's got to be the case for some people. So we'll keep looking at that as we go through here and see if we can find some other examples of that. I've got a few prepared. Hmm. Uh, another maybe example here, Kristen Cole hated and killed Joffrey Lonmouth in a tournament. Again, this guy just... <laughs> Using tournaments to just take out his... These aren't political enemies. These are just people he doesn't like. <laughs> and interestingly, Barrison was sacked by Joffrey Baratheon now. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's... Maybe that's a stretch, but I thought that was kind of cool. and the But the result of that is interesting. You have Cole being named Alicent's Sworn Shield right after hmm. that. And Barrison goes to join Daenerys right after being sacked by Joffrey. So right after these Joffrey incidents, <laughs> Barrison and Colch switch sides. So, or at least confirmed their side switching. They had already kind of left the other side. And then another one, thinking of Jorah here, Barriston, what does Barrison do? One of his famous moves when he comes on with Danny's team is he is probably the biggest reason Jorah was removed from council by spilling the secrets of his past that proved he was acting as a traitor at first against Daenerys. And what does Kristen Cole do the, the minute The Dance of the Dragons breaks out? He removes Lyman <laughs> Beesbury from council. <laughs> maybe kills him, maybe throws him in jail. I don't know. We're not sure. Yeah, I killed him. And that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. If Kristen Cole kills Beesbury just right there in council, that's crappy. Like, that's, that's dishonorable. That's scummy. But if he actually threw him in jail, which was what one of the sources says, then that's, well, that's still kind of scummy, but it's not near, <laughs> not even close to as bad, right? Like, that's way better so, some leeway there. Of course, they both disobeyed the king's final will. That's mm-hmm. a really big one. That's you know Barriston just kind of went along with it. He sort of protested, but when Cersei tore the will up, he just okay. <laughs> it, it
0: just, interestingly, too, for Barriston, kind of in that compare in that same kind of comparative vein, Danny, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but Danny. Makes a very firm declaration right before Desneck's pit that she does not want to treat with the Tired Prince, that she's not going to allow the Tower of Prince to take control of Westeros. And Barrison is standing right there, literally right there next to Danny, because he's the one that brings the information to Danny. And then what happens in Barrison's final chapter of Dance with Dragons? Barrison's like, yeah, we'll we we'll give we we'll the Terra Prince Pentos as long as you betray Yunkai on our behalf. So we have another part where the where Queen where the Queen's will is being expressed will, state of will, because Barris is right there. He doesn't have any excuse, is being subverted in order to gain a short term advantage for probably a long term pain in the ass for Danny's side. Come the wins of Winter.
1: Yep, and Barristan has kind of become and all throughout this. Barrison is thinking how he doesn't like this. He doesn't want to do any of this. He's just out of depth. I can seriously picture Kristen Cole feeling similar like this is not where I, I got he 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 has to do it because it's his duty, but he knows he's not good at it. He knows he hates it. I could kind of see Cole being similar. I mean, mm-hmm. he he he's not really a politician. He's a when they named him hand, which we'll get, you know, get a little later. He just wanted to just start He's like, campaign, let's go war, fighting. <laughs> which is kind of Ariston's attitude. <laughs> on the personality side, there's a good chance they're both virgins. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to make, make fun of them by any means. It's just a statement on the kind of person they are and the life they've led and their perspective, which is, it goes a long way towards explaining, maybe, why they're both so chaste. And if, if Cole is the one that, was, that rejected Rainier, that was horrified by her coming on to him, this would really fit with that because he would be, I don't know what to do. I'm, I thought of you as like a daughter figure. This is, this is, it could explain why he turned against her so hard. Of course, her rejecting him would also explain that. So, but either way, that's not a relationship that happened. And Barristan Selmy, clearly, not clearly, but he joined the Kingsguard early, was a knight pretty early. How do you feel about this in general? I, I think it's clear that Barristan Selmy is very much
0: like Ares O'Kart, where Ares O'Cart in, in Arianne's chapters is talking about, oh, he was very experienced in the bedroom before he became a King's I Absolutely. <laughs> he was all about that. And then Arianne's like, but you're not very good, so probably not. right? I, that's, that, that's the kind of perspective I get about Barristan and, his, uh, and, and whether he was a virgin. I absolutely think that he was a virgin. I do agree, too, that Kristen Cole was likely one as, as well. And I was thinking about this too, kind of the like the overarching side of things. You know, Kristen Cole turns against his rightful queen. I have it in italics here, so I'm not not making a a value judgment necessarily, although Verniera was technically right. And Barristan, (laughs) if he does turn cloak, (laughs) (laughs) if he does turn cloak against the aristocrat, will also be turning against his rightful queen in favor of a man. And Kristen Cole makes this point in Fire and Blood where he talks about this idea that the Andal customs place a son before a daughter. And that is likely, if Barris ends up turning cloak in the Winds of Winter, that is likely going to be something that is going to influence Barriss' decision. Because if he comes to believe that young Grift, aka Aegon VI, probably not, is, is, is actually the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, <laughs> he would be next in line ahead of Daenerys Targaryen. So that's a potential place where these two men could be intersecting in terms of their storylines at least in terms of their ter- the potential turn cloaking and their definite turn cloaking in the form of Kristen Cole but again for Kristen, it's it's very ambiguous cuz there's multiple reasons given why he actually turns cloak against Rhaenyra.
1: yeah absolutely and of course keeping in mind that as always all these these reasons are g- given are uncertain so that's something we're we're battling with here but that's that makes sense too because when you study history you don't you never have complete answers and so george is trying to re- replicate that real world situation of of uncertainty with historical sources. I think he does a pretty good job of it. He's certainly fun. He is fun. Yeah, right? And Mushroom is fun. Septon Eustace is, well, he's not as fun, but he's interesting. <laughs> and Gildane is, well, Gildane has is very opinionated, but he's also interesting. <laughs> he is that. And uh, yeah, so here's one that's very much the opposite, though, that I think is interesting. Uh, maybe shed some light on their character because Bar- as, as much as Barristan and Cole have a lot of Plot arc similarity, possibly even more if Barristan goes the route of Cole and switches sides for young Griff. But in terms of their disposition towards violence and things like that, that, that might be different. Now, Barristan refuses, very notably refuses to assassinate Dan. He takes Ned Stark's side on hmm. that. Uh, good for him. And uh, yeah, it's one of his, it's a great shining moment that he, one of his earliest one of the first things we learn about him. So right away, we're pretty predisposed to like Barristan. On the other hand, Kristen Cole, we're predisposed to not, there's not much to like about him right away. And, uh, or later, really, <laughs> other than him being very interesting. And But he does try to assassinate Rhaenyra. Right. And that's uh, using shady means. So that's potentially a pretty big difference there.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I totally see that. And I think that does speak to this kind of consistent theme in both the stories of Danny and Rhaenyra. And that, you know, Danny and Rhodira's inner circle is constantly in both of their minds betraying them, right? And this leads to paranoia on the form of both Daenerys and especially Rhodira. Danny is not going mad, but she's having a certain degree of paranoia after all the shit that she's gone through in her arc so far and and arc so far in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that has led to some kind of violent consequences in Danny's story, but especially a lot of violent consequences in Rhaenyra's story in Fire and Blood. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the turn piece here is that as you were saying, Kristen Cole attempts to actually assassinate Daenerys Targaryen. And that, excuse me, Kristen Cole, yeah, wow. Kristen Cole <laughs> attempts to assassinate Rhaenyra Targaryen, and that leads to more of a paranoia coming out Whereas I think it's more likely that Barristan's turn is likely going to be motivated by the paranoia. So it's kind of a chicken and egg sort of thing with, is the paranoia Ooh. being inspired by the actions of a character like Barristan Selmy or is the turn cloaking being inspired by the paranoia that Daenerys Targaryen might be exhibiting come the wins of winter?
1: Great point. Yeah, and of course, there's always the Barristan's inner monologue of him going to serve the true king slash queen. If he believes that Young Griff is truly the son of Rhaegar, then that's the true king in his mind. He's, you know, he's he knew Rhaegar. This that would he he would come first. So mm-hmm. that's a that would be a conundrum for him. It wouldn't. It, it could be seen as treason, and the history books could say he turned his cloak, but it would be at least somewhat consistent with how he's laid out his his own sense of honor ahead of time. So, eh, and that's where we're getting into this whole. History can be unkind to people who make tough decisions because the history doesn't record the, the all the nuance with that decision. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk a little more about Kristen Cole specifically and build up his history and then uh, lay that out and then move on to Baratheon himself. <laughs> House Cole was stewards to the Dondarians of Blackhaven. And that's that's kind of like... V- that house pool for for the hmm. starks Vine pool and uh, those guys the tyrells used to be a steward house to the gardeners but, yeah but they got promoted <laughs> yeah big promotion that's a huge promotion so he was born in 82 ac at blatt blackhaven and we're not sure what year he was knighted but probably very young given he was in the king's guard by 23 so he was probably in that 16 17 18 knighthood range which is Way ahead of the curve. Uh, So we're talking... Yeah, we're talking basically one of the best fighters of his generation. He won the melee at Maidenpool at age 21, roughly. And that was celebrating Viserys' ascension. This is the the time when he defeated Daemon Targaryen, knocking Dark Sister from his hands. Again, I'm just (laughs) like, how did he wield Valyrian steel in a tournament. <laughs>
0: yeah, like why, would you do, like, why would you do that? Were they trying to, like, kill each other? I mean, like, you, as we know, like, from the main series, they're using blended weapons throughout in order to prevent them from, like, losing life and limb. And even that's not a short thing, as we know that one of the plots was in, at work in A Game of Thrones was that they were hoping to kill Robert Baratheon during the melee, or at least Varys says as much to Edward Stark. So yeah. using Valyrian steel seems like an extremely dangerous way of doing a tourney fight, but I, I, I don't know. Why, why, why would they do that? Why?
1: It might be an example of of the sources just being wrong. They were they're just assuming, well, that's his sword. So he would be mm-hmm. wielding it. But mm, maybe that's they just made a bad assumption. I don't know. But I, I like your idea better because <laughs> it's I prefer to think of it as, as something that really happened with with and then try to worry about why because it's right. It's it's interesting. Now, so after this victory, Kristen Cole gives the victor's laurel to seven-year-old Rainera. And this is possibly. You know, he's playing favorites. She's she's the heir. Uh, it makes sense to do that. Like, why not do that? And um, she maybe, this is maybe when she catches, uh, she starts noticing him more. A lot of probably young girls uh, take note of Kristen Cole at this point. He was hmm. handsome and a great warrior, beating everyone. So, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Now here, let's talk about his the, the era where he came to his own end. This is pretty important because the, the style and the social, the social elements are really important here. Kristen becoming uh, the joining the Kingsguard on the death of Ryan Redwine is a really big deal. Ryan Redwine was on the Kingsguard for 45 years by the time he died. And he was probably the longest Kingsguard in service at that point. That record was broken eventually by a guy called Long Tom Costain. But... (laughs) Nice name, right? Yeah, Yeah, I love it. (laughs) But this, so, but probably Ryan Wedwine had the longest stretch of Kingsguarding before that. And this guy was ultra famous. He was super, he was like, I don't know, Gerald Hightower is one of the best comps we can come up with. But even Gerald Hightower only uh, led the Kingsguard for 25 years, which is a really long time, but almost, you know, 45 years is so much longer. So, This is a guy that really set the standard for Kingsguard. And I think that's uh, when you have a really powerful, dominant nearing figure that just is so perfect. It really sets the stage for other people to live up to that. What do you think about the idea that Kristen Cole was stepping into some pretty big shoes here?
0: I think it's interesting because I think it illustrates something about the psychology, right? And that he is stepping into some very big shoes, as you were saying. But it's also, he's stepping into some, a uh, very, a very noble cause. At the same time, he's also stepping into it at a young age. And I get a lot of Jamie Lannister vibes from that, where Jamie mm. was knighted at a very early age and then assumes the King's Guard at a very early age after Cersei, convinced, there's some theories that go into it <laughs> about,
1: <laughs> about about
0: the, convincing the II to take... To take uh, Take Jamie into into the Kingsguard. And, you know, Jamie makes this point about whether it was the white cloak that changed him or he that changed the white cloak. And I do kind of wonder whether what Christian Cole's life was like before this moment. Was he always aspiring to this role? We don't get the same sense that Jamie was always aspiring to becoming a Kingsguard knight until Cersei convinced him that this would be the chance for them to be in King's Landing together and never be separated. Without the a point of view chapter from the from Christian Cole, which I can't imagine we'll ever get, we can't be sure what Christian Cole's life was like before he ended up assuming the Kingsguard role. But having that kind of you know archetypal amazing forebear in the form of Ryan Redwine in his place does lead him to probably having to do a lot of measuring up. Like, is he actually going to be the same sort of Kingsguard knight that Ryan was? Can he fulfill that role? Can he at least match the value that Ryan Redwine brought to the Kingsguard? It was probably unclear to him as an early 23 year old dude, but I'm sure he had a lot of aspirations and maybe a little bit of arrogance because, you know, who, what male who's 23 years old doesn't have a little bit of arrogance when they're assuming a big role like that, right?
1: <laughs> Especially when that, with that kind of skill backing you up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a great take, Jeff. And also to add to this, some of the things we know about Ryan really helped set the stage for this and, and indicate maybe the type of man that Kristen was at least trying to be, which is that Ryan was one of these very, uh, well, he's the one that caught Luca Moore the Lusty and reported them to Sir Giles Morrigan the celibacy vow. So he, unless he was some giant hypocrite, Which is possible, but, you know, (laughs) given such a long career, there's no... He never slipped up. At least he never got caught. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty telling. So the guy... If if y'all don't remember, Sir Sir Lucamore is the one who had a whole bunch of 16 children with three different women while he was in the Kingsguard. Mm -hmm. And that obviously didn't go over well. So if you're trying to fill the shoes of Ryan Wedwine, and he's a guy that, that upheld the celibacy part of being a Kingsguard, well... This is perhaps a part of the evidence pointing to Rhaenyra being the one to come on to Kristen Cole rather than the other way around. Now, of course, he could have just been, you know, into girl, little girls. We never, we don't know. We have Eesh. no idea.
0: But... <laughs> uh, God damn it, he's Wow. Right?
1: It, it just happens, right? It's gross. <laughs> but, you know, this is George R. Martin we're talking about. He's not going to pull punches on something like that. So... Uh, but I don't believe I don't personally believe that. I don't think that's likely. I think that because of the the environment, Kristen Cole was brought up, the, the type of man he was trying to be. I feel like he was the looking at her kind of like a daughter, and yeah. uh, she had this kind of schoolgirl crush that maybe grew into something else. But I don't have. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not here to tell people they're wrong if they feel the other way. Is that which way do you lean? On? We may as well get into that. We're about to talk about Rainier. So, what do you think? Uh, on which side of that do you take? If you have one at all, uh, I
0: tend to favor this idea that, that Mushroom brings out. Because, I mean, there's a great essay on, on the Tower of the Hand uh, website from a number of years ago after the World of Ice and Fire came out, which is Mushroom is always right. And I don't accept that Mushroom is always right necessarily, but I think he's 95% correct. I think it was more likely that Rhaenyra, that Rhaenyra used the training that Daemon Targaryen was giving her in order to test it out on someone who could be, you know, the epitome of the Kingsguard Knight, right? If she can seduce... Kristen Cole, who was the shining example of what the King's Knight was at the time, then you know, then she could prove that she could seduce anyone, and then, and then she mm-hmm. is the the wiles in order to do that sort of thing. But I I find it ambiguous, and I find it more likely that it was Rhaenyra who came onto him than Kristen Cole who came onto her. But I do accept the possibility that it was Kristen Cole that was actually interested in her. Um, I do think the age disparity early on, and um, when she when he gave her the laurel after winning the tourney at at a winning the tourney um, was something that more likely than not um, inspired Raniere's fascination with Kristen Cole I'm not I would think maybe and hope that Kristen wasn't necessarily interested in a nine-year-old girl at the time but
1: I sure I hope not <laughs> I, I,
0: you know I, you like you were saying George is not coy about playing with these things he has introduced a lot of these elements in A Song of Ice and Fire so I think it's important that we leave it as an openness a possibility for sure
1: yeah, we just hope it's not true. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> Although if it is, then yeah, a good thing that he got, he got killed the way he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Sanrixian Super Chat, love y'all. Thanks for keeping us entertained. Great choice of subject. Well, much love to you, Rixian. Please check out Sanri's artwork. She is so very talented and uh, prolific. Mm-hmm. She's great. Love her. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the Cole and Rhaenyra's time together and how this all worked out and led to it. With his pale eyes, coal-black hair, and easy charm, Cole soon became a favorite of all the ladies at court, not the least amongst them, Rhaenyra Targaryen herself. So smitten was she by the charms of the man she called My White Knight that Rhaenyra begged her father to name Sir Criston her own personal shield and protector. His grace indulged her in this, as in so much else. Thereafter, Sir Criston always wore her favor in the lists and became a fixture at her side during feasts and frolics. Yet
0: Princess Rhaenyra continued to sit at the foot of the Iron Throne while her father held court and his grace began bringing her to meetings of the small council as well. Though many lords and knights sought her favor, the princess had eyes only for Christian Cole, the young champion of the King's Guard and her constant companion. Sir, Krista protects the princess from her enemies, but who protects the princess from Christian Cole? Queen Alison asked one day at court.
1: Now that's, uh, Nina tells us this comes from, this is a, a borrowing of, juveniles satires, the uh, the Roman writer, uh, and this is interesting because the the con- he's making fun of the concept of the idea that if a woman is really this wanton, what good is locking her up going to do? She'll just if she's that into just get determined to sleep with somebody, then she'll sleep with her guards. Hmm. So of course it's just because the whole thing is kind of ridiculous. You can't you can't do that. And well, some societies have just gone even farther with that. That's where the whole. Idea of eunuchs come from, and uh, you know, in some cases, you have women protecting women, but that's less common. Still, mm. Mushroom says, "Let's let's run through this real quick." Mushroom says, "Rhaenyra wanted a relationship with Kristen Cole," which is interesting because Mushroom is the one is pro Rhaenyra. So mm. the fact that he says she wanted a relationship with Kristen Cole is a pretty strong argument because he's you would think he would be taking her side on things or. Like you said, maybe he's just telling the truth. He's, just, he's not trying to spin it, maybe exaggerating it, but he's not totally changing what happened. Do you think that's a, a pretty important point there? The fact that that Mushroom is the one saying Rhaenyra wanted a relationship with Cole? Absolutely. I think the fact that he
0: is biased on Rhaenyra's behalf, and then he brings up a kind of not so flattering account about Rhaenyra, I think it speaks to the veracity of what Mushroom is saying. And now, of course, there are other accounts that, that are beyond Mushrooms that indicate something else. And they do, interestingly, uh, Eustace is the one who's who's pro green, right? Yeah. So he's the one that comes up with an, op- and we'll talk about him in a moment, but he's the one that comes up with the opposite perspective yeah. on Kristen Cole and Renier, which is interesting. So are we supposed to have, that? so in my, my, my mind, I'm thinking that both Mushroom and Eustace have equal reasons. To be telling the truth here, which, but one of them has to be wrong, right? I mean, they can't both be right at the same time, unless there's a little bit of both happening at the same time. And they're recording only one set of circumstances and experiences from one side, the green side, and Mushroom doing it from the black side. I, I, again, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a touchy, interesting issue.
1: It is the fact that each source kind of confirms the the story that you would expect the other side to confirm based on favoritism is very con- con- confounding. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, wait, mushroom should be the one saying that Kristen did it, and Septon sh- Septon Yussis should be saying Rhaenyra is the one. Eh, nope, that's opposite. So, yeah. Uh, so some of the other details that Mushroom lays out is that Damon, you referred to this earlier briefly. Damon offered to train Rhaenyra in seduction mm-hmm. and how to seduce men. Uh, Viserys found out. King Viserys found out, obviously he was not happy about this, that his brother was teaching his daughter how to seduce men. That's Most parents don't want to find out, find that out or have that happen. And in response, Damon's like, well, then I'll marry Rhaenyra. <laughs> and Viserys is like, what? How is that a solution? <laughs> <laughs> and so Rhaenyra, again, according to Mushroom, goes to Kristen and offers to sleep with him after... In it partly in response to being told she's going to have to marry Lenor. Now, Lenor was not interested in women. So you can see why Rhaenyra would be not so into that idea, marrying a guy who's not going to be into her at all. Mm-hmm. Especially because at this point, she's really used to having lots of attention. She's the realm's delight and she's apparently incredibly beautiful and just a lot of people want her favor. People fight duels for her all the time. That's a, from someone in that perspective with that much, uh, Power over men to be, you know, have your star hitched to a guy who's not interested in you at all because he's into men as well. Is that's that would be you know <laughs> you would want to avoid that I think if you're her. Uh, so this is what we're told. Mushroom says Kristen was horrified and spurned her. He he had <laughs> he just was like, oh my god, you're not the person I thought you were. I thought you were this wonderful princess who I can you know who I can think is very honorable and noble and chaste, and you're nothing like that at all. And so. You know, he turned on her, and this is when Rhaenyra went to sleep with Harwin Strong. She mm-hmm. found, you know, encountered him in, in the hallways, and he was kind of the, the the shoulder to cry on, sort of the other man, the <laughs> strong shoulder. He's a strong shoulder to cry on. Strong <laughs> shoulder to cry on. Boom! Nice one. Yeah. Okay, so why don't you you tell us Septon Houston's account? Uh, since I just ran through uh, mushrooms, let's get the other side of this.
0: Yeah, so Septon Eustace, we were saying before, he was, he's backing the green, so his account is coming from Aegon II's court. And he's, his perspective was that Rhaenyra slept with Damon and then asked to marry him, which Viserys refused. So we have a little bit of commonality, at least one strand of commonality, in that Damon in Mushroom's account asks if he can marry Rhaenyra to Viserys, and Viserys rejects him. Here in Eustace's account, Rhaenyra sleeps with Damon and then asks to marry him, which of course Viserys refuses. And then Christian Cole then goes to Rhaenyra after she was betrothed to and to confess his love for her, offering to go into exile and Essos with her, which is interesting. That's an interesting perspective. And then finally, Rhaenyra refused him because she was meant for more than to live out her life as the wife of a common soul sword, and did not trust that he would keep his marriage vows if he, cared, if he did not care about his king's heart vows, which is an interesting point because as we know, if you're willing to break one vow, there is a likelihood that you can break more than one vow. And this yes. is something that's brought up specifically in Jon Snow's storyline in A Dance with Dragons and A Storm of Swords. If you are actually breaking your vows as a Knight's Watchman, are you actually worthy keeping on as a Knight's Watchman? Which is then decided by, you know, well, it isn't actually decided until Jon goes out to Mancerator's camp and then Stannis arrives and saves the day, as he often does. But <laughs> <laughs> we, have to, we have to have the one, the, the token Stannis reference in this episode, which has <laughs> nothing to do with our, our king in the north, a king in the north. Um, <laughs> but yes. So it's interesting, I think, that we have these two different accounts, and I'm curious: Do you see like similarities or common like themes between Mushroom and, and, and Eustace's account? Is there is that the way that we can determine some of the truth statements that are being issued by both of these historians about the
1: time? I think it helps a lot if we hone in on what's the the things that the two accounts agree on, or at least seem to agree on. That definitely seems to help because that gives us a lot of confidence that at least those parts are probably accurate. If both sources agree, it's it's more solid than some of the other things they're said, especially the things that they conflict on. For example, they both seem to agree there was a, at least some kind of sexual relationship with Damon or sexually oriented relationship with mm-hmm. Damon prior to her marrying Laenor. There was talk of this marriage between Damon and Rhaenyra prior to her marrying Laenor, even though Viserys was against it. The idea came back when Viserys was dead, clearly. And a private meeting between Kristen and Rhaenyra before her marriage to discuss one's love for the other. That, one way or another... The sources agree that this thing happened where one confessed the love for the other. We don't know which did was on the receiving end and which was on the giving end, but but it seemed they seem to agree that this confrontation happened. And then they both agree that whatever happened, Kristen hated Rainier afterward. <laughs> 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 However it went, Kristen came out really hating Rainier, whether whether because he was jilted or because he was disgusted.
0: I definitely get that. I think there's there's the similarities I think are interesting that we can get s- part of the truth. And that's something that George has talked about when he's writing Fire and Blood. And he's sourcing this back to real world history, where we have a number of historians from ancient times to medieval times, even modern times, that are all taking one perspective and are coming with a biased point of view. Now, a lot of times what historians do is that they take, if they have have multiple sources, and a lot of times they don't, they only have one source to illustrate one particular period of time in history, they will try to compare different sources and try and find the true statements therein. So I know like, when I was in college, I, I took a class uh, called Judaism at the time of Jesus and Hillel, which talks about what the true statements are from the New Testament, whether that, how that could be compared against things like Josephus, Tacitus, other different Roman historians, because they're all coming at it with very unique and different understandings and unique and different perspectives. And finding the commonalities between all the different sources generally indicates a, a larger degree of truth than when they're coming from a single source because i know for a lot of like roman history when we get into like the 3rd and 4th centuries cuz i know we're we're both fans of the history of rome podcast uh, oh, as yeah. they were going through that kind of chaotic period in roman history we, there's only like one or two sources for a lot of these roman emperors that are lasting for 4 or 5 6 months and so we don't actually know whether it's true or not and so we have to like bring in other things like archaeology like songs like burial grounds and burial mounds we don't really have that in the case of Westeros because, again, it's, it's not real. As much as it is real in our hearts, it's not necessarily we can't <laughs> go and dig up, um, you know, the battle of, of the god, over the god's eye and find the bones of the dragon or whatnot and compare it to the historical record that is being issued by a Believe Russian. me, I've tried. <laughs> I'm sure you have, yeah. <laughs> You're out there with your
1: little toothbrush there, sanding down yeah, the bones. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking. No bones yet. I'm still, I haven't given up, though. <laughs> <laughs> good.
0: It's good. Keep, keep strong. Keep strong. Harwood's strong.
1: <laughs> yeah, Harwood's strong. Let's move on to the next phase here, which is Cole's switching sides here. His immediate move was to uh, turn to Queen Allison. So here's a quote. This includes some of the things we discussed already, kind of shoring it all up. Denied Rainier his favor, Kristen Cole turned to Queen Allison instead. Wearing her token, the young Lord Commander of the Kingsguard defeated all challengers, fighting in a black fury. He left break bones with a broken collarbone and a shattered elbow, prompting Mushroom to name him Broken Bones thereafter. (laughs) But it was the knight of kisses who felt the fullest measure of his wrath. Cole's favorite weapon was the morning star, and the blows he rained down on Sir Lairos' champion cracked his helm and left him scentless in the mud. Bloodborne from the field, Sir Joffrey died without recovering consciousness six days later. So now he's fully, fully on Alicent's side, and that leads to him discussing things with, or moving on to Aegon. So. Before we move on to that though we got it looks like we have a couple of uh, comments from folks here we have Shannon0893 says what if they both wanted to sleep with each other call only if they went into exile to be public rainier on the on the side of staying okay
0: maybe there's like the Jamie Cersei parallel like in in a storm of swords where Cersei comes Ooh. to to Jamie and says we can live as the Targaryens did we can we can be brother and wife and we can I can remain the queen and you can be my lover or we can get married or whatnot. Uh and Jamie's like no no, we 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 cannot do that, that sort of thing. We would be stoned. We would be lead to an instant rebellion. Basically, we are basically proving what Stannis Baratheon has said is actually correct, which of course it is, but we would be showing the realm that you know Stannis was the one who was right all along.
1: Yeah, and of course, this isn't quite the same as brother-sister, but it's close enough in terms of being very, very not okay for a queen to marry a king's guard. That's supposed to be completely off limits. That's not as bad as incest, but it's definitely a no-no. <laughs> frowned upon broadly yeah it's hard to measure up to as bad as incest that's a tough (laughs) bar to clear Uh, so yeah all right. so Jeff why don't you read this next quote we're we're talking about Kristen Coles presents arguments as to why they can't allow Rhaenyra to inherit the throne and some of them are decent arguments some of them are self-serving yeah, there's a lot of both going on at the same time, which is what often is happening in The Dance of the Dragon.
0: So I, I did read part of this quote before, but I'll read it again in full because the full quote is just glorious, the way that George actually sets this up. So, yeah, Sir Kristen Cole spoke up. Should the princess reign, he reminded them, Jocera's Valerian should rule after her. Seven save the realm if we seat a bastard on the Iron Throne. He spoke of Rhaenyra's wanton ways, the infamy of her husband. They will turn the Red Keep into a brothel. No man's daughter will be safe, nor any man's wife. E- even the boys, we know what Lenor was. So wow, that's um, that's a quote right there for uh, for our, our boy Christopher. I mean, like you were saying, there are some legitimate grievances and interesting ideas that are presented. Like having Daemon as the Queen's concert may not be the best idea for a peaceful Westeros. Remember, this is the guy that attempted to conquer the Stepzones zones and involve Westeros in that war for a really, really long time. Has a history of taking out his personal grievances and corrupting the recently formed Gold Cloaks in King's Landing. So those all seem like legitimate arguments. But what about the other stuff about turning the Red Keep into a brothel, that kind of homophobia he's exhibiting to that no man's daughter will be safe, nor any man's wife. Were, were they, any daughters safe before, you know, Damon was around, any man's <laughs> wife, you know, safe before that as well? I mean, it feels like there's a bit of hypocrisy on what Kristen Cole is saying, even if he does have a point about Damon specifically. I think it's the only really solid point that he has in his argument against yeah. uh, seating Rhaenyra on the Iron Throne.
1: I think that's true. I I agree with that. I think Cole is doing that thing where people assume gay men are also into boys, which is, there's no evidence of that for Lenore uh, that I know of. I mean, it's possible, but it's probably just slander. And it comes from his perspective. If he's this overly chaste man, then he's going to look down on any kind of sexual freedom that people have. But that would be, (laughs) if this was a real real uh, incrimination, then it would be serious. But it probably isn't. And the other idea that, yeah, like you said, people are going to be sleeping around with each other. I mean, yeah, that's going to happen anyway. Right. And But the the idea that the Queen's children are bastards, the idea that Jaehaerysh Valerian is a bastard, that, to you and me, probably to almost all of us, that, we don't care. But right. But Westeros does care about that. I mean, Ned Stark cared about that. Ned Stark didn't mm-hmm. want Joffrey to inherit because he wasn't Robert's son. And, well... <laughs> jacaris Valerian is Rhaenyra's son though she just it's the father that's in dispute so this is not quite the same thing but it's i think it's worthy of discussion where do you fall on on that particular nuance of the issue on the on the jacaris' birth issue
0: I, I I tend to favor that he was he's harbin strong's son i mean it's yeah. it's clear that that Rhaenyra was not uh especially faithful to her her betrothed but um i does it, does it actually matter though in the long term? I think the Song of Ice and Fire broadly is exploring that whether being a bastard is actually evil as, as a common practice in the North. You know, Snow is an evil name so what when, when, is what he grits tells John Snow in a storm in a clash of kings rather and that kind of kind of goes throughout whether talking about people like Ramsay but I think Ultimately, it's not necessarily whether you have a bastard surname or whether you have no surname at all, but whether but rather the deeds that you're doing that makes you noble or not. I think that's that's a point that's being brought up a lot in a character like Davos, right? Who is extraordinarily mm. low born, does not have any is raised up to knighthood and then lordship by Stannis, and is exhibiting a noble character, exhibiting noble characteristics. And that's what ultimately makes someone worthy of leadership. As opposed to the certing that you're that you have, whether you are actually the son of Lenor or you're the son of Harwin Strong. Those are important things in my mind. And just Jace, by all accounts, seems to be a pretty good dude all around. And I think that's important. And that's what makes him, you know, valuable to be a potential inheritor of the Iron Throne. Not that he may not actually be Lenor's son.
1: Right on. Well said. Now, another issue that comes up that's very important, Cole doesn't mention it here. But after this point, once this debate goes on a little further, and it's pretty clear that the green faction is going to make their move, well, Aegon himself has to be included. what That's the point they're at right now. The guy who most needs to be bought in, the prince himself, Aegon II, the one who's going to take his sister's crown, he has to agree to it. And to this point, he hasn't even been involved in the discussions. So that has to happen. And it's Kristen Cole that goes to him and says hey, you should rise up against your sister. And he's like, well, what kind mm-hmm. of man does that? What kind of man steals his sister's crown? So at first, like, <laughs> okay, good attitude. That is the right attitude. But Cole says, but wait, what's going to happen once they ascend? Do you really think that Rainier and Daemon are just going to let you be? Daemon's going to have you executed. Now, I can't say he's wrong. I think there's <laughs> a very good chance Daemon would have had them executed. And consider the treatment of Adam Valerian. Like, Rhaenyra does not treat him well. He's as loyal as they come, but he gets deemed a risk because he's a bastard. But this is awfully hypocritical, right? Rainier's his own kids are bastards. And mm-hmm. <laughs> she seemed quite willing to execute people who were deemed a threat, even if it was through, uh, even if it was often other people fueling her paranoia. I mean, it's just a lot of things that made her paranoid, but maybe she was kind of a paranoid person in the first place. It's kind of unclear. If this hadn't <laughs> been a Civil War scenario, maybe she could have just, you know, she ascends and there's, there's no peep, no one, no worry of her brother trying to usurp her. Then maybe it goes fine. But on the other hand, Allison Hightower was ambitious. Otto Hightower was ambitious. Sunfire would have just been getting larger and larger, mm-hmm. right? These the danger from the, the other dragons on the green side would have been getting bigger because that's a big thing at the beginning of the war. Is the blacks have a significant dragon advantage? That advantage would have fallen off over time as the other dragon, younger dragons, caught up. So. Where do you fall between these? Do you think that... Two-part two, two part question here. Do you think that... <laughs> do you think that Aegon... Uh, well, that Cole was right that he... That Aegon... That Allison's children would be executed? And do you think that war between these two factions would have been kind of a foregone conclusion no matter what?
0: I think it, it was inevitable. I mean... And I do think that they would have been executed. I think that Aegon II would have died. Um, and... Would we have cared? I, I don't know. I mean, Aegon the second isn't necessarily the best dude in the world. I also am interested too about the we were talking about we were talking about about sources, and Aegon the second seems very blasé about assuming the iron throne and Kristen Cole has to convince him of that. Is that post facto kind of like Aegon II wasn't actually interested in the Iron Throne because he lost. (laughs) In fact, what was actually occurring was that he was just kind of dragged in by his evil, wicked counselors. That is something we'll talk about a little bit later on when it comes to the role of of the evil counselors to the king or the queen and how they actually operate as sort of a... uh, uh, a patsy for the wrong deeds that are being done on behalf of the regent, because the regent could never be actually blamed for, for any of these any of the wrongdoing that oh, happens of in the realm. Not. <laughs> no, you can't. But br- you can't blame maybe Egg a- on the second. He did one in the first place. All he wanted to do was <laughs> to hang out with his parabore in his room all day long. <laughs> not so sure about that one, but you know we'll leave that aside for right now because we don't have any other sources which say otherwise. But I do think there is an issue of bias there. As was throughout Fire and Blood, is going to be a major issue. I totally agree. I think. T- I-, I think too is that you know. Allison has a point, but then again, she's also ambitious. And this is one of those things about the Dance of Dragons that is both good and also a little bit frustrating, and that there's no clear side. There's no house stark that you could be like, these guys are obviously in the right. They were wronged by one side. And they have done, you know, the best they could to operate justly and to operate ethically in a wartime setting, for the most part, with some, you know, kind of nuances and ambiguities, as we're getting into it at a Clash of Kings of the Nauticast podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's it's different though with the greens and the blacks, and that I don't see a lot of evidence that these guys are particularly that you know appealing. That really, um, they, they I, I do think there is a bit of villain coding when it comes to the greens, but ultimately I think that they're both not great sides. Mm. They, they, <laughs> it's really hard to be like, yeah, I'm a supporter of the blacks, I'm the supporter of the greens, <laughs> and I could be like, I think that Renira was the rightful queen. I could say that. Daemon, Daemon Blackfire, Daemon Targaryen was likely a guy who would then execute everyone. And that kind of makes it hard to be like really, really strong on behalf of Rhaenyra or really, really strong on behalf of the Greens and Aegon the Second. What do you, how do you, how do you come down? I've never actually asked you this before. Are you, are you you a green guy? Are you a black guy? I'm wearing the green Um, shirt,
1: but I I, I agree with you that it's basically, unexcitedly, I go with blacks because like you said, that's the law. I mean, that's the best thing you can... I think when, yeah. you're, when you're coming down to it, she was... The king named her as a successor. And I prefer the succession to pass through to the oldest child because I think the person that most caused the dance, legally speaking, the one who set the, the precedent... Um, perhaps more than anyone else, as much as everybody loves him, and there are good reasons to love him, but it was jaharis's fault, and Al mm-hmm. and Alisan, good Queen Alisan, was insistent that this would cause problems later. She was right. Alisan <laughs> is so smart and wise that she was totally right. <laughs> I go, I, I really go off on this point in our in in our radio Westeros collab on the Dance of the Dragons, talking about how this was Jaeharys just should have let the oldest person inherit. None of this would have happened if that was established. Just let the oldest one inherit and it it removes so much complication. So, uh, that's another reason I support the Blacks is it it supports the simplistic solution of always letting the oldest one inherit. Agreed. I agree. So, what does all this tell us about the inevitability of Young Griff and Daenerys? Is there hope for peace between the two factions or are they also just there's no way that this can't come down to war? (laughs) Let me give one reason why it might not come to war or it might not right. end in death. I think it will start as war, but there's one historical example that gives us hope that it might be resolved peaceably. And that is the example of Gaiman Palehair. Let's let's hmm. recall who Gaiman Palehair is. He was foisted upon the, uh, the Iron Throne and he had the, the hair color to, to make it look right, to, to fit the part. And it was determined that he wasn't really a bastard. And his counselors were killed off or sent to the wall. And that was all undone. However, they didn't execute him <laughs> for one reason. There's no need to. There's no longer a threat. His claim was gone. And and being a three-year-old, five-year-old, they're like, well, we don't really need to kill a bastard, a non-bastard child of a king. He's just a regular kid. He ends up being Aegon Third's food taster. They become friends. Hmm. So... And of course, he is killed tasting food, but <laughs> so he does it. die out. So he is ultimately killed by the Dance of the Dragons. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> okay. couldn't that happen with Young Griff? Because Danny, the visions of Danny, uh, is that she's going to slay the lie of the cloth dragon on poles and the mummer's mm. dragon, not necessarily slay the fake dragon himself. If Young Griff is proven definitively to not be Rhaegar's son. His claim vanishes, and there's no reason for to kill him. Could we? Could that be what we're seeing here? Or do you think Young is just gonna go down in flames, perhaps literally?
0: <laughs> oh man, that's it's an interesting. Yeah, I, I think i This is the first
1: iteration of this argument
0: that I've heard that actually makes makes sense to me. That this that could be resolved somewhat peace peacefully. I think too. You have to like, talk about like real world history, as we know from. 15th from the Wars of the Roses was Perkin Warbeck, right? It was the guy who was the alleged son of one of the Henrys or whatnot. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then yeah. he invades England on behalf of, and he goes to Ireland, he goes to France, he's recruiting people, he brings them over and attempts to unseat Henry, one of the Henrys again, I'm not sure which one off the top of my head. And then I think it's either him or another one of these pretender type figures who is then later then sent to the kitchens and uh, is not actually executed. He's the one that's, that becomes the taster for, for the king or for the, the king's son can't remember which one. So that the George is sourcing that to Real world history again. My details are a little bit vaguer than they really should be. I should have written this down in the notes, but I think it's. <laughs> um, but, but I do think it, it does do some some work in there. So yeah, I could see that as a possibility that Danny doesn't you know make you know baby Aegon you know roasted Aegon over over King's Landing or some other way that that she, that she could dispose of him. I do think that the 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 this lie that she has to slay is interesting, but I also think too. So one of the aspects about young Griff is that he's not so much a character in the story, and this is going to sound weird, but he's not so much a character in the story as opposed to a series of ideals that people are foisting on him. John Kyneson is looking at him as the way that he can avenge Rhaegar Targaryen. Varys is looking at him as the perfect prepared prince that is so well prepared. Look at all these things. He has done so many wonderful, awesome things. He is... Fished with fishers. He has ridden with on horses. He has gotten education from a septa, as he announces to Kevin in, in Kevin Lannister's epilogue. So I think you would have to clear out a lot of Aegon's counselors before you would get to Aegon. And then we have another aspect too, which kind of comes into significant play as we're entering into early in the Winds of Winter. And that's the form of Arianne Martell, who remains extraordinarily ambitious and is extraordinarily interested in becoming the Queen of Westeros. Because as we learn at the end of A Feast for Crows and as we explore in A Dance of Dragons and her Winds of Winter sample chapters, she has now learned that originally she was going to be the one who was going to marry Viserys in the original um, pact that the Dornish had signed with, uh, with, um, with Daenerys, the sea Lord. With, the, with the target, with the Seelord yeah. the the and Witness. So with that being in mind, you'd have to clear out a lot of these major players around Young Grift before you actually get to the point where he could potentially be saved. And the other aspect too, I think is worth bringing up is the type of character that Danny is going to be when she arrives in Westeros. As she stands right now at the end of A Dance with Dragons in marine, maybe she would be the one to spare Aegon, but the character that she'll turn up in with the Winds of Winter, likely going to be a little bit different, a little bit more prone to some of these violent, as I've talked about before, this kind of prophetic conception around herself, this destined figure, the Zorahai reborn when she encounters the Rulorites and the Winds of Winter, and how that's going to interact with the lie that she has to slay. And I agree, yeah. So I, I think it's interesting. I, I I would hope that's the case. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily particularly bad about young Grift besides the people around him. He seems like a pretty <laughs> okay dude all around. We don't know much about him. But I do think that that she has to clear out all of his counselors and all of their, you know, Desires to rule Westeros before she would end up bringing him, sort end up saving him and bringing him into into her services. So I'm curious, do you actually like believe that argument that that she that young Drift is going down to end being end up surviving in the Winds of Winter, end up surviving? Danny,
1: I do think it's possible because the example of Game and Pale Hair is so unusual, and I, I the reason I got on this idea was because I used to be so I, I've looked so hard at the parallels with Aegon the Third himself and seeing him as an excellent proto-John Snow and proto-Bran Stark and thinking about just who this character would be. This Gaiman Palehair character is so odd paired in there. And I was I thought at first, maybe Gaiman was an example of of maybe a different character who would have thought they were king uh, or had some sort of claim and that they set it aside like John himself, maybe. Hmm. But uh, ultimately, I think the slaying of the lie part is what really gets me because that's such a big part of what happened with Gaiman is that he was... Foisted, and then the people that foisted him admitted that he wasn't really that, and that could—I mean, John Connington can't admit that he doesn't know, <laughs> but Varys maybe—and see, that's a big problem with this theory—is someone has to admit that that Aegon's not legit. That right. has to come out somehow. Now, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. That's that's that is a big challenge for for the realm to believe that he's not truly Rhaegar's son. When they're doing so much to try to make people think he's Rhaegar's son, it's gonna it might be kind of hard to undo that. But I mean, Danny, da, Danny,
0: Danny's going to Pentos, right? Probably in the winds of winter. And who is in Pentos? I think so. But Illyrio yeah. and who is the potential father of Young Grift? <sighs> Illyrio.
1: Illyrio. The real dad. Yep. Real daddy might have to give up his secrets there. Yeah. So that could be a yeah, that might be it. But there's still the matter of getting people to believe that and it would be very interesting if Young Griff himself accepted it. That would be really quite striking. <laughs> that would make him more of a character than, a, you know what I mean? That would, we'd actually yeah. be getting into him as a person, which, as you say, we've very, very little of that has happened. We have a vague idea of his personality, and that's about it. Uh, his, his backstory is far more interesting than his personality to this point. So, obviously, if they do fight, if, obviously if there is a struggle to the death, clearly um, Danny's going to win that, but <laughs> who knows at what cost, right? Right. Okay, so let's move on to... There's this very odd moment in, late in Kristen's campaigning life, not long before his actual death, when he's leading his men after having an argument with Amond, who they can't decide on a plan of action. So Amon decides, I'm going to just go burn the Riverlands. <laughs> and Kristen Cole's like, all right, well, I'm going to go do something that sounds a lot more intelligent to me anyway, which is take our army and go unite it with the other armies on our side down in the south in the Reach. That sounds pretty smart to me. However, he does not succeed in this goal. What they're doing here in the, the Blacks are doing to Kristen's army is so bizarre. Uh, I will read this part of the quote. Four days out of Hall, the attacks began. Archers hid amongst the trees, picking off outriders and stragglers with their longbows. Men died. Men fell behind the rear guard and were never seen again. Men fled, abandoning their shields and spears to fade into the woods. Men went over to the enemy. In the village commons at Crossed Elms, another of the ghastly feasts was found. Familiar with such sights by now, Sir Kristen's outriders grimaced and rode past, paying no heed to the rotting dead. Until the corpses sprang up and fell on them. A dozen died before they realized it had all been a ploy. The work, as was learned later, of a cell sellsword in the service of Lord Vance, a former mummer called Black Trombo. So, what's happening here is the in Kristen's line of march, they're setting up corpses that look like they're having dinner and just playing out scenes of of regular life it's bizarre <laughs> and to me it's i just can't help but think of undead whites things like that mm. in the riverlands much later from now and seeing things like that corpses springing up and attacking them like human armies being assaulted by dead things it's, i can't not think of that do you think i'm i'm reaching or do you think this is no. just No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, George is making significant
0: allusions throughout the narrative in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect to the others and the others' ability to raise the whites up. He's doing this intentionally so we are always, even if we're not consciously putting it together like you just did, but we are constantly being reminded that this motif exists in A Song of Ice and Fire of the dead rising. And in this case, it is more they're not actually dead. They're actually rising up because they're we're, we're playing deads and then for lack of a better term and then we're then taking that and then ambushing uh our, our friend Kristen Cole and I think George is doing a really good job of doing that I'm, I'm drawing a blank but I know we talked about recently in not a Cast podcast where there is there's moments where like the dead are being raised up constantly in this kind of illusion but they're not actually dead and that does speak to what the others do and how that actually strips away the humanity of these people and you know to take it to take your example and it, it's just kind of stretch it out even farther it's this idea that you know, that war is making corpses of people and that people that are rising and are surviving this war are kind of dead on the inside. A lot of these folks that are coming out of the Dance of the Dragons, character like Aegon Third, specifically, are really fucked up by the war and they barely have any zest for life. And I think that is another point that George is integrating and that the others are doing this same sort of thing outwardly and magically, but the same sort of effect exists within the quote, real world, the realistic politics, regular world that's happening in both the Dance of the Dragons as well as the modern story in the Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Right on, very well said, and of course this is tied up with another piece of sort of endgame feel. The way Sir Kristin's death happens here, well, maybe the moment before it, this this line by Roderick Dustin. Sir Kristin answered, "If there is to be battle here, many of your own will die as well." The Northman Roderick Dustin laughed at these words, saying. That's why we come. Winter's here. Time for us to go. No better way to die than sword in hand. <laughs> now we know who that sounds like. That's good old, that's a big bucket or whatever his name was. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> let me taste blood off a Bolton skull or whatever it is he says. It's pretty similar. Uh, similar sentiment. You know, last winter, they know they're not going to die, live much longer, may as well die with a sword in hand. So this is when we get that badass line we, we led at the be- read at the beginning when Kristen says, okay, Then it's a fight to the death, you know, but they don't give him that. They shoot him with arrows and let him drop dead right there. Now that the ignominious death of Cole is another thing that leads us back to Barristan. Let's say Barristan is in the Riverlands leading an army of Aegon, Aegon the Sixth, the young Griff's, and he's fighting the dead. And something like this happens or something remotely like this happens. And he just dies in a meaningless skirmish. (laughs) Well, what would that remind you of Barristan's death in a meaningless skirmish? That's pretty much what happens on the TV show, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right? So, I mean, like, um, a lot of folks think, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but a lot of folks think that Barrison will die at the Battle of Fire, and Barrison in that moment is he is in his prime, right? He is sword in hand, driving towards the Yunkish legions. As you guys talked about in that episode, their Battle of Fire episode from you know eight or nine years ago now, <laughs> and all of that stuff is just this glorious like thrill of battle sort of thing. Barrison gives this amazing war speech in Barrison's first The Winds Winter sample chapter, and then he's leading his men into battle, and that. To me, the, the example that brings out Kristen Cole, to me, thinks that Barrison isn't going to die you know, in this kind of glorious manner at the Battle of Fire. That it's likely going to be a much more ignominious death than what we saw, as, like, similar to what we saw in Kristen Cole. Not necessarily going out like a badass, you know, fighting either the Yunkish or the Ironborn or Victarian or someone like that, but instead kind of going out like a chump. I think that's, um, that's the way that Kristen Cole goes out. I think it'd very much be the same way that Barristan goes out, uh, hopefully later in The Wind's Winter or early in The Dream of Spring.
1: Right on. What we said at the beginning is, is there a chance Cole is a victim of the history book? So let's let's add all that up together and see if we can maybe squint and see a case where he's very misunderstood. All right. So a couple of things we agreed with him on. But Damon being a terrible idea as king consort and the, the, the possibility of him executing uh, his kin on the other side, on the green side. Uh, Jacaerys being bastard born. Mm, that's... You know, we don't mind that as much, but it's uh, legally speaking, he's got a, a point, I suppose you could say. Let's say he didn't kill Lyman Beesbury, just put him in jail. Let's say the Andal custom was something that's lit- that's very important to him. I would disagree with him on that, but he may have been <laughs> it may have legitimately earnestly mattered to him. What about going on the offensive after he was made hand? He immediately takes to the field. I, I think that's pretty much what Barrison does. He has no patience mm-hmm. for politics. He goes right to the fighting. That's what Barrison does at Marine, right? Barrison's walking around Marine mm-hmm. like, oh, I got no, I don't want to deal with this, this Skaznak or this Resnak or I don't want to do. <laughs> Skaznak. I just, yeah, Skaznak. <laughs> yeah, Skaznak. <laughs> 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 I don't want to deal with any of this. I want to just like I understand sword in hand, enemy on the field. That's so that's what, he, what mm-hmm. he wants to get back to. And that sounds kind of like what Kristen Cole was doing. So I don't know. Does that are we have we made a case with that, or is it still does it fall short? Or and what else do you have to add to that? I guess let's let's turn that over to you.
0: I, I think you we I think we made the case really well that that Kristen Cole is the archetypal forebear for for Barristan Selmy. I think it's really strong writing on George's part that he would include this story about this. Not random Kingsguard knight, but not random Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but a whole lot of detail and information about this guy in Fire and Blood. And that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the meta side, um, and about the inspiration for why George wrote Fire and Blood, and what that possibly means for Barrison and Daenerys' story in The Winds of Winter. And just, you know, a caveat, it's just a theory. George has not come out and said, like, oh, I wrote this because I wanted to foreshadow events from The Winds of Winter. But I <laughs> think... <laughs> It's very likely as we're looking in Fire and Blood that George's inspiration in my mind is because he wanted to do a lot of the groundwork that would make Barristan's turn, the second Dance of the Dragons, much more prominent and important and have a lot of historical substantiation, which I think he had enough in the in the five published books. But, you know, it's George, so he has to go into enormous detail, which is great. It's great. It makes it so much more fun. So, I, you know, I was thinking about this and thinking about how The Dance of the Dragons occupies a major chunk of the imaginary history that George was writing after the publication of A Dance of Dragons. And the reason, in my mind, that George wrote this story was to provide some firm historical foundation for that aforementioned second Dance of the Dragons, something that George once said in a so Spake martin from 2003 would be a subject of an entire book, aka The Winds of Winter. And so my argument is that the story of Kristen Cole, which is really only hinted at by just a few point-of-view characters, Barristan being one of them, kind of grew out of this larger narrow, meta-purpose Now, why include such deep and lovely detail on just one Kingsguard knight and his various relationships with the nobles at court, his relationship to Rhaenyra? Certainly, it could be because George's love for a lived-in, vibrant universe is a big part of it. I mean, George loves to have his details and loves to embed a significant dearth of, not dearth, a significant amount of information that kind of makes these stories feel lived in and makes them feel real. But to me, it kind of makes more sense that George was interested in creating an archetypal figure for Barristan Selby. And then George could then ground a character like, I don't know, say, they had Lord Commander Barristan Selmy into that archetypal framework that Kristen Cole, uh, that Kristen Cole currently occupies in the history. To me, that makes a lot of sense. I think when we're talking about Fire and Blood, we're talking about George's love for history. He's not just writing this in a vacuum, right? Ultimately, he's writing this because he wants to make his world much more strong and make the future books of the main series, The Winds of Winter and the Dream of Spring, feel that much more powerful, and grounded in the history of Westeros. And, you know, as, as we were talking about a, a little bit, of, because we just finished Storm, the Storm's End chapter from, uh, we didn't finish it, we're halfway through, <laughs> chapter three from, from A Clash of Kings. Uh, but George does a ton of work in doing building up Storm's End as a castle and the history and mythos that go behind yeah. it. But it's not just simply just like world building. It's also really flavoring the characters in the story. And when George is writing history, it's similar. It's not just world building. He's flavoring the current characters and the current narrative. Daenerys, Rhaenyra, Barriston, Kristen Cole, Aegon II, Young, Griff, all of these characters are informing each other and they're all kind of talking like this, kind of meeting at cross purposes, uniting and synthesizing to form this kind of grand, lovely narrative that George loves to build in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I think it's great. I mean, we've had, we've had some debates and conversations in the past in various mediums about whether Fire and Blood was worth it or not, but I've kind of come around to your perspective um, that Fire and Blood was actually worth it and that you know, allowing that foundation of world building in history makes for a much deeper and more meaningful series ultimately.
1: And it's kind of cool because you don't have to read any of this stuff to. You're not lost without it. It just adds. It's pure add on. It's pure, uh, you know, addition. It's not required. So that's right. it's a, it's, that's to, speaks to George cleverness. as he's he's creating a a world that you can scale to your own interest level (laughs) if you want to be extremely interested and obsessed like we are it's it's there for you and if you want to just kind of keep it on the surface level well that's still really it's still going to be really good so why don't you read this you pulled a really good quote here that's uh, a good lead-in to our transition to Barristan himself then um, we'll do our mid-roll and then we've got a, a bit of questions that have built up so we'll take care of those before going over Barristan's life sounds good
0: So we get this from A Dance with Dragons, in which Resnagmo Resnak, that famous character, sort of, says, You were the Queen's man, said Resnagmo Resnak. The king desires his own men about him when he holds court. I am the Queen's man still, today, tomorrow, always, until my breath or hers. And that comes from A Dance with Dragons? The Queen's man. Imagine that. And that's basically (laughs) Kristen Cole's quote could be as well. (laughs) And I love to to think about this quote in terms of... um, because you guys are big fans and I'm as well. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> you have those that moment at the beginning of every episode, which starts with, I am doing this following thing. And then the the, the, the title card is, <laughs> the following thing did not happen or
1: whatnot. So I yeah. am the Queen's
0: man still today, tomorrow, always until my last breath <laughs> or hers, followed by the black and then the screen text, Barrison and Selmy turns cloak on today's
1: topic <laughs> <area>. <laughs> That is how it would work. work exactly. <laughs> you nailed it. Okay, let's give a few shout outs to our supporters. Uh, thank you very much to our uh, Blood Rider patrons, who include Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian Steel arak with a Dragonbone Hilt, Koe, called Piercer, wielder of a Dragonbone Bow, Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip Gehenna. Oh my goodness, I accidentally skipped our patron shoutouts at the beginning, didn't I? Well, I better do those now. <laughs> Talanes the Talon, king of Gagasos, rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. Hunter of House Blackcloud, the Stormrunner, King of the Sky, Rider of Horanicon, the Windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum, silver horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, with eyes the color of diamonds, a fire. And we have some uh, queens of love and beauty to give a shout out to. Uh, from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Kari, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. A laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. <laughs> also, of course, since I missed him at the beginning, we have Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword. And I must shout out, because they're excellent people, our Cell Sword Captains. It's their time for. And I've been looking for them this whole time. Here they are. Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers. To long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Chiron calls Bane, captain of the Stone Shield. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Hame Helminth, captain of the Whispering Children. Dead men tell no secrets. Shepard, the shepherd of Essos. All men are sheep before the shepherd. Heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara d'Ajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer. Castellan of Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point. Captain of the all-female Wailing Widows, wailing Widows, that is. Women and children first. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, captain of the Red Waste Exiles and recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood is captain of the English Lions with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. And Steel is captain general of the Golden Company. Beneath the gold, the bitter steel and our word is as good as gold. (laughs) We took it all. We brought them to
2: our land.
1: An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Oh. Carved it in the blood
0: on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the
2: end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2.
1: Play it now with Game Pass. Now, for some questions from you guys. Uh, Leon Rubenfeld says the story of the Third and Game and Palehair has many parallels to Tommen. Both with the whipping boy scene and the food taster, the silent giant could be Robert Strong, and there's many more. Yeah, that's very true. That's this is a, a worthy of further exploration, but I suppose it's not a little bit a little bit off topic. But thanks for the note because that is, that is. Yeah, it's a, a little great bit take. off
2: topic. I think we have talked about it somewhere in our Aegon the Third, John Snow episode. I think we made other uh, connections, other parallels. I think you're right. I'm definitely familiar with that because of stuff with the whipping boy, whipping boy, and food mm. taster.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Silent Giant was would be Sandok, maybe. Yeah, Sandok the <laughs> Shadow. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that is. There's some strong parallels there for sure, and especially with Tommen being uh, going out the window, which is what happens to um, uh, what is it, uh, Aegon's first wife, Aegon the Third's first wife, and one of uh, Aegon's kids, right? Aegon the Second's kids. Yeah, lots of kids going out windows in the Dance of the Dragons. Um, Joe Magician says, "Dead with Victarian's axe in his skull." Whoa, that's that's a prediction from for Barristan's death. Is he is he trolling, or is that what he really thinks will happen? I, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> is
0: Victarian even going to make it off of his ship before he blows Dragon Binder and like <laughs> explodes <laughs> internally, or something like that, or gets eaten by a dragon? I don't know. good
1: question, I don't know. To, hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Violent Messiah six 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 says, "If Victarian kills Barristan, I will burn my copy of The Winds of Winter." <laughs> and uh, a super chat from the new dad podcast make sure to check out the new dad podcast that's yeah. a really good show right just getting started talking about the experience of being a new dad hey that's right up your alley isn't it? you're not no. a new dad but you're you haven't been a dad a long long time you know like how how long you've been a dad for three what, four years. years so my my so oldest right? is 3, my three years. my youngest okay. is 2 so uh yeah
2: you really got to appear on that podcast you
1: might be a perfect guest for uh, I, for over there i don't have to talk there. with it, it it's is it Tomas?
2: You, you've got some girls and he's got oh, some girls. Oh, well, boys. we're not going to be
0: arranging any marriages. I'll tell you that much right now. There's <laughs> <laughs> not going to be I'm
1: any just betrothals. Just no way. Dang. All right. Let's go to uh, the life of Barristan and talk about uh, things from his perspective, comparing him to Cole and just in general to himself. So we've gone through Cole's life and Barristan was born 236 or 237, first son of Lionel, knight of Harvest Hall. His sigil: three yellow stalks on wheat of wheat on brown. Cole's sigil was uh, ten was ten black mm. b- pellets, which is a strange sigil, really. I, yeah, the night of the kitty litter or something like that, or the <laughs> food. Oh. dog food. <laughs> 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 and the current Lord of uh, Harvest Hall is Arston, who is Barriston's great-grand nephew or great-nephew. Hmm, yeah, smart one there, <laughs> Barriston. Calling yourself Arston, <laughs> he's just not very creative, is he?
0: <laughs> that was enough for George to fool me back when I first read *A Clash of Kings*. Like, who is Arston? Yeah, oh, oh, oh my God, it's actually
1: Barriston. Oh wow,
0: how was that asshole who got that
1: wrong? Yeah, so he's squired for Manfred Swan. And I think Barristan's kind of like the Westerosi version of a child star. You know, you you're you're noticed by everyone and revered from a very early age. And it kind of changes your life arc dramatically, it kind of determines who you are. You're you're you have less ability to be your own person because you're constantly being what other people expect you to be. And that is uh something that Kristen Cole maybe had in common with him is that they were both incredible warriors early on. And that kind of set their fate there. They both ended up Kingsguard by being the top warrior in the realm or near it that put them on this very straight path. And, you know, real world child stars have all sorts of, I mean, of course there's exceptions, but it's, it's common enough that they become depressed. They, uh, you know, do the opposite of what these knights do where they get deep into drinking and drugs and, and lots of, sex with random people, which is the opposite of these guys. They're the ex- opposite extreme of that. Whereas there's, as we talked about earlier, maybe these guys, maybe neither of them uh, have had sex ever. And they're certainly not going around getting wasted. <laughs> you know? And So it's kind of the opposite. They're not allowed to have these pleasures. It's more of that kind of side of it.
0: I like them too. It's like kind of like sports stars as well. Like, I mean, it seems like yeah. there's, there's not really like a sense of, uh, of, of sports in, in Westeros, but a lot of these guys feel like there's kind of prodigy athletes who rise up through... middle school and high school and then when they're on into like major league sports whether that's baseball or football or whatnot that they have a a extreme amount of talent they've developed over a long period of time because I mean as we know from Knights they develop very very early on from a Page to a Squire to a Knight it's the typical Role that people go through. Of course, some people never advance beyond the squire status, and I'm assuming some people don't also advance beyond the page status. But at the same time, like mm. there's there's this kind of like almost like farm like system in terms of like developing knights. And so we have a character like Barrison Selmy who goes very early on from a pay, from a page to a squire and then on to a knight, which makes him an extremely talented professional warrior or athlete. One of the yeah. two.
1: Yeah, right on. And I think, yeah, I think athlete is probably a better example than child star, like a, a, pro, a prodigy athlete, because tournaments are probably the closest thing we have to sports in Westeros. Yeah. Uh, nightly tournaments. That's that's probably a better parallel. Uh, so, what was Westeros like around this time? Because we talked about that for Cole in terms of the nightly attitudes, like what was chivalry, how was chivalry viewed, and, and who were the role models of that era? We talked about Ryan Redwine probably being, almost certainly being the biggest role model of his era. Well, Somewhat similar, maybe different figures, but certainly some big names in this era. Barrison would have been coming up around the time that Sir Duncan the Tall would have perhaps been the most famous knight. Very good chance he was the most famous knight. He was the Lord Commander of the King's Guard and he had slain several Blackfires himself. So that helps. Uh, and, you know, going to, or not slain, but defeated, he was a big part of three different major mm-hmm. Blackfire rebellions, uh, winning them, and did kill one of the daemons directly. Mm-hmm. So also Gerald Hightower would have been around. He would have he was the new young lord commander uh, after Summerhall or maybe was already in the King's Guard before Summerhall and just survived it. Not clear, but either way, young guy named a uh, very long career that was very uh, well regarded. So you know, another role model might have been Prince Daron, not not the uh not not well specifically the the son of Aegon mm-hmm. V, the one who was also a uh, nod into women. And he was a, quote, born soldier who rejoiced in tournament and battle and died in battle in, you know, about eight years before Summerhall. So Barristan would have been a teenager during the Rat Hawk and the Pig Rebellion that claimed the life of this Daron, this Prince Daron. He may have either been just old enough to fight in it or just just quite not old enough to fight in it. What we have, too, is maybe the possibility that he witnessed the marriage of Princess Rael and Ormond, who married in 245, and this is kind of like uh, seeing Rainier get married early on, things like that. A little bit of parallels, small things. Not, these aren't big parallels, but there are at least some similarities in their upbringing. And of course, he has his The Bold mm-hmm. incident when he gets his nickname at age 10, uh, around, age, around the year 246, 247. And he was beaten by Duncan the Small in that tournament. And Duncan the Small is the one who gave him his nickname.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this, about when Barrison is entering into, I mean, we haven't quite gotten there, but entering into the Kingsguard and the type of knights that were around when he came in. You know, you were, you were, we were talking about Ryan Redwine before and about Kristen Cole stepping into his shoes after this long tenure as being the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard and even longer tenure being a Kingsguard knight in total. These are big shoes for Barrison to be falling in on, and it's also interesting too in that Characters as, as wide-ranging as Jamie to Ned Stark to others talk about the Kingsguard during this time and about these specific Kingsguard knights, Gerald Hightower and Barristan being the two best examples, as being the knighthood of the Kingsguard, right? The Kingsguard Knighthood at its best. And I do wonder whether that is a little bit of a distinction between Kristen and Barrison. Then that, and this is a question for you guys because I actually don't know the answer for it. Do you was what was the Kingsguard like as Kristen Cole is sending it? Ryan Redwine is dead at that point. Who are the other six knights when Kristen Cole ascends it? Were they actually good dudes in the same way that when Bearson steps in, Gerald Hightower seems seemingly, we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, a little bit about the ambiguities about him was a, as a good guy. Is this Was the Kingsguard knights that were ascending, that were in place when Kristen Cole came into the Kingsguard actually legit? Were they good people?
1: It's hard to say because a lot of them turned out pretty good, but we're not sure if those were the ones who were actually there at time. We know about the actions of the Kingsguard a lot better around the era when the war actually breaks out. But of course, a lot of this happened 10, 15 years before the war. And so it's not that clear who was in the Kingsguard along with him. Uh, But the fact that Cole just rose above all of them is somewhat telling, right? There wasn't any, any kind of comparably amazing standout, at least we could say that much. And we do end up with guys who did some kind of crappy things. Some of the King's Guard for some of the King's Guard that stayed with Aegon the second were turned out to be really bad dudes. Mm-hmm.
2: So Yeah, I mean we've got what, like three that stayed with uh A- with Aegon the second, in addition to uh to Kristen. So I think you could say that those three are not terribly reliable <laughs> if they would betray <laughs> uh, their ruler. So I could say that, perhaps.
1: Basically, it's a big deal who you get knighted by. This mm-hmm. is an important little point here. Uh, George, in fact, has ways in himself. We've got a direct quote from George. The question posed to George, this is relating to Rob Stark and Oliver Frey. So, and why did Lord Frey ask Rob to see about Oliver's knighting when he had more than enough anointed knights at his disposal to attend the matter? Meaning, Lord Frey had plenty of his own sons who were knights, but... George says, why should someone go to Harvard when they can get a degree from their local community college? There is great prestige in receiving your knighthood from a king, a prince, one of the Kingsguard, or other celebrated legendary knights. Getting knighted by a brother is like kissing your sister. <laughs> we'll leave Jamie Lannister and the Targaryens out of that. <laughs> and getting dubbed by the local hedge knight is like graduating from barber college. You get a sheepskin, maybe, but don't try applying to law school. So... It's 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 funny though too when you when you think
0: about that quote in the in the context of you know characters like Sir Dunk who likely was not knighted until much later after claiming to be a knight for for a long period period of time but then you have also other characters like Sir Gregory Clegane who was knighted by Rhaegar Targaryen and this is a big deal <laughs> whoops but like as we were talking about like earlier on and and my point about A Song of Ice and Fire a big part about it is that it's not necessarily like who knights you as opposed to the deeds you do after you're knighted. So you could be the lowliest, shittiest hedge knight, but you're doing the good deeds that, that Duncan does, that Dunk does, then you're good. But you can also be Sir Gregor Clegane, knighted by the crown prince of Westeros. and You could be the shittiest knight possible. So I, I find like, um, I mean, I, I know exactly what George is talking about and he's making a, you know, really good point about what what's, what's, what's so special about a character being, what, who's actually knighting you? But at the same time, I also want to be like, to a lot of these folks in Westeros, West, which I can't, you know, reach across the pages and talk to them, but I want to be like, it's not <laughs> about who knights you, it's not about your lineage in terms of your, your knightly virtues, and it's a bit, excuse me, it's more about your actual knightly virtues that you're exhibiting as a knight. That's what makes you important. Are there no true knights among you, as Duncan will say, and then the hedge knight.
1: Speaking of that, we have Barristan getting his white cloak directly from the king, Jaehaerys II, and he says his vows before the white bull. Side note: I bet that guy Squire Dalbridge was there. Speaking of oh, people yeah. who never advanced beyond Squire, he was Viserys or Jerry's second uh, Squire. So hey, <laughs> he was he could have weighed in on this, but alas, it's too late. <laughs> now there's a couple other uh, maybe events that are relevant to this. Barristan's being involved at Duskendale is interesting, and there's uh, another. Event the he he won a melee at Maidenpool, which is hey, Kristen Cole won a mm. melee at Maidenpool, a famous melee at Maidenpool. That's the one I think, unless I'm getting mixed up. Where he the the event the event where he's wielding Dark Sister versus Kristen's Morning Star. Now that's interesting too, because in the artwork of Melees, the is fighting Barristan, the official artwork in the world of Ice and Fire, Barristan's wielding a sword, and Melees is wielding a Morning Star, and. Daemon Targaryen was king of the Stepstones and Maileys Targaryen was king of the Stepstones. And this is both, (laughs) these are the two, this is what put them, these guys on the map. When Kristen Cole won that tournament and beat Daemon, that's one of the most early events in his life that made him famous. Not nearly as famous as Barristan here, killing Maileys in a real battle. Although if uh, Daemon was wielding Dark Sister, that was real enough too. But clearly Barristan... Cutting his way through the Golden Company and killing Malice is more, more impressive. But still, it's, a, it's got a lot of similarities, at, at least in tone there. Would you agree or is, am I stretching there a bit? No, I love it. I think that's something I never picked up before, but I, yeah, I love it a lot about
0: the, That similarities. And, I, and it, I love that piece of artwork too that's uh, from the World of Ice and Fire of Barristan, the Stepstones, killing the two-headed Malice, the monstrous. That's one of my, I, think it's, it's that, I think that's actually my favorite piece from, from the World of Ice and Fire, which is a lot of lovely art in it throughout, but that's, that's definitely my favorite.
1: Right on. So side question here. Um, I asked this one to Stephen Atwell when we did our coverage of of, <laughs> of the War of Nine Penny Kings. What kind of helmet would Mali's the Monstrous wear? <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> Because Wha- in that art, he's not wearing one at all, which maybe that's how it would go. Maybe that's why he was killed. Was like that dude went into battle without a helmet. But he's what is he, I, what, he? What is he on HBO or something? Oh, right. Yeah. He's <laughs> in as well. Yeah. You
0: know, you know, that's that trope from TV tropes. How much how much helmets are hardly heroic is the TV tropes uh trope that, that goes for it. But yeah, of course, Melee's is not hardly heroic at all. It's, it's hardly heroic at all. So um, yeah, I've gosh, I I've never even thought of that question before. Um <laughs> Probably didn't wear a helmet at all because there's probably like he was the, the golden company armor is just like just I can't do this, man. Like you can <laughs> you can just like don't get hit in the head. That's the important thing I want to tell you as you're going into battle.
1: Well, too bad for him. It's a good thing he's tall and <laughs> so yeah. So the thing about Duskendale, though I kind of skipped over that, Duskendale having, you know, being this big moment of his that defines him as he he thinks about it as did I do right? It was this moment that people Lawed me for, but was it really a good deed? Because Aries, I mean Ares, why should rescuing Aries that wasn't good, mm-hmm. was it? And you wonder if that's part of wrapped up in the possibility of why he might leave Daenerys if she, if he starts to if she starts to show signs of being like her father at all. That's a big reason for Barriston to have second thoughts. Do you? Would you agree with that?
0: It's a huge part of it. I, I think. Barristan in, in A Dance with Dragons is haunted by this guilt that he feels over his conduct as as a Kingsguard knight under Aerys II of defending a truly monstrous and bad king for Westeros. But he, at, at the time, as he tries to rationalize as he's thinking back to it. He's thinking about it in terms of, I had my honor and my vows. and My vows said I had to follow the king. I had to do what the king said. And that is kind of bad about whether vow, what, how you prioritize your vows. I mean, it's, Jamie is going to talk about the end of a clash of kings, like vows and vows that make you swear and swear. Defend your defend your father, love your father, love your family, defend the king. But what if the king is bad? What if your father is bad? So all of these things are coming into focus. And this is why Barristan is such a fascinating character, especially as he becomes a point of view, because he is thinking about things like Duskendale. And he's thinking, was it the right thing? And he thinks about this in terms of Rhaegar, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But he thinks about whether it would have been better if he had let Ares die and let Rhaegar ascend the throne. Would that have actually led? to a forestallance of the war of Robert's Rebellion. I mean, maybe, possibly, potentially. But at the same, it's it's kind of way up in the air. I think we'll find out more in The Winds of Winter for sure. But I think like uh, Barristan is consistently haunted by this this idea that he was trying to do the right thing so hard during the defiance of of Duskendale and it ends up being the wrong choice because if Ares had died, perhaps Robert's Rebellion doesn't happen and Rhaegar definitely ascends the throne. Barristan with Daenerys, though, is interesting because by the end of A Dance of Dragons, my sense from Barristan's storyline is that he is looking at Dany and he's seeing her as this ideal figure to be the queen of Westeros. As he talks (laughs) about to Dany at the end of A Storm of Swords, he says, you do not have the taint of madness in you. That's why I'm assuming that you are going to be a just and good queen of Westeros. You are doing good by the people that you are leading. You are seemingly the best suited person for the kingship or the queenship, rather, of Westeros. So that's why I'm supporting you, and that's why I've come from Westeros. But mm. what happens in the Winds of Winter when Danny comes back leading a Dothraki horde? What happens when Danny is there saying that she is the prophesied Messiah figure and is the reborn Azora high figure? She ends up taking on Brelore. What if she starts identifying her champion as fire, something that Eris Targaryen does and Barrison is witness to? These are things that are likely going to be leading to some significant doubts in Barrison's mind about whether he is actually supporting the rightful queen. And as much as objectively, I don't think that Daenerys Targaryen will be mad or going mad at any point in the story necessarily. I do think that a lot of people around her are going to assume that she's going mad. And we already start to see some of that in A Dance with Dragons with various characters, such as Sellswords, Tyrion, other characters as well, who are saying, well, she may actually be mad. When we know because we're inside her head that she's not necessarily mad. What right. is Barristan's perspective of Danny going to be when she returns from the Dothraki Sea? She might just start she might just start, he might start to see shades of Ares in her, and that's a little bit troubling. But we can talk about that a little bit for sure.
1: Yeah, I think this is important and and we need to wrap another character into this discussion because he's a huge part of this. Varus. Varus hmm. Barriston is not a fan of Varus. He's he blames the beginning of the rot on Ares's realm to or Ares' reign to Varus. Now I don't think I need to tell you all that this is <laughs> a, not accurate. I mean, Aries was clearly terrible before this, but it gives you an insight into what Barristan thinks about some of the other things Ares did wrong before. Apparently, Barristan wasn't terribly bothered by that, which is maybe a whole other topic and not one that hmm. looks well on Barristan. But the idea that <clears throat> it seems more like that Aries is already on a downward trend. Duskendale made it a lot worse because it's pretty clear that Ares really hated his experience there and it, and it messed with him a lot. So I would argue that Varys maybe pushed Ares more into paranoia, but the, but, the, but the groundwork was clearly there already. And this is more of that, uh, what you were referring to earlier about the blaming counselors for things rather mm-hmm. than blaming the person who's actually in charge. And it's a big part of where Barristan's loyalties might go later. Because if Barristan finds out There's two ways this could go, I think, two major ways this could go with a lot of, you know, sub-versions of this could happen. But if Barrison finds out Varys is the one that's been backing him and putting him with Danny, that's gonna, he's not gonna like that at all. He's Hmm. gonna find, he's like, wait, Varys arranged for this? Wait a second. On the other hand, Varys has more to do with young Griff than he does with Danny. So if Varys, that's kind of an argument for him switching sides, but also against it. So it really depends on what he knows. If he's like John Connington and just is, gets fed the wrong information and believes Aegon is truly Rhaegar's son, well, that brings another character we need to wrap into this, Rhaegar. So hmm. Varys and Rhaegar, the interplay between these two and what Barriston thinks of those two and their influence and their honor, that's a big deal. Because if he really thinks that's Rhaegar's kid, he might want to support him. But if he sees Varys's hand behind this, well, that's a big turnoff. So I don't know how we put all this together, but I think these yeah. are both really important elements to consider.
0: I think it's interesting because, like, we're we're talking about Varys and his role. It's it's very interesting because for for the longest time, I had this belief that Varys was the one that steered Barristan to Illyrio in Pentos and got him over there. And I thought that was actually in the books. Turns out it's not in the books. It's not. We don't actually have evidence of that. But uh, Barristan somehow ends up in Illyrio's manse in at the start of a Clash of Kings after he flees King's Landing after witnessing Ned Stark's death. So. That's interesting. And I think uh, we'll we'll have to discuss that a little bit more as, as we're progressing forward. But I think yeah. like the other aspect about Barristan is that in contrast to Ares, he's a he's a big fan of, of Rhaegar Targaryen. seemingly, right? He's the guy that's consistently looking at Rhaegar and seeing the clear distinction between him and his father. And that's kind of unique and fascinating when you come up with the idea and come into the idea that Barrison is going to find out about that Rhaegar's son, son. <laughs> is alive. So how is that actually going to go down? What's Barrison's what are, what what do you imagine is going to be Barrison's thought process as he encounters this idea that Rhaegar's son is alive?
1: Boy, that's going to be difficult. And like you said, he liked Rhaegar a lot. And he, and because he's envisioning Danny as this kind of perfect queen slash princess, and he finds out that. That's literally how they raised young Griff to be that exact thing. He might buy into this and think, oh, they really did raise him well. He's like, wow, Rhaegar's kid raised well. Problem is, will <laughs> he agree that he's raised well if Varys and Illyria had such a hand in it? I don't know what Varys, what Barriston thinks of John Connington. That's not an opinion that we've seen either way. I don't think John Connington has had any thought about and Selmy. And I don't recall <laughs> Selmy thinking about John Connington. I don't think he knows John Connington is alive even. So right. uh, so that's that's a missing piece here. But it's such a big deal. I think he's going to be very torn. I think he's going to want to feel a lot of pull to switch to Rhaegar's son. Um, and you mentioned virus is rolling all this uh, from a different angle. And here's something else I should bring out. What does Barristan think about the fact that it was Varys who suggested that they let Barristan go? It was Varys' suggestion to Joffrey hmm. and, and Cersei to let him go. Of course, Varys had his own reason there. He wanted Barristan for himself. But Barristan's not going to see it that way. Barrison's going to see it as like, look at this guy suggesting Kingsguard are removed. That just sounds really dirty and dishonorable to him. But of course, Varys's angle on this is to set him up with either Young Griff or Daenerys. And yet, there's another element that's a big problem here. <laughs> the Golden Company. Is there bad blood between the Golden Company and Barristan Selmy? I mean, he <laughs> killed their captain general. Aren't they supposed to care about that? Or is it because it's been, you know, 40 years? Maybe, they, maybe they're maybe they over it? What do you think about that?
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I got to pull this quote up from uh, from our episode we did on, on Barrison. But I mean, there is this idea from Tyrion's fourth, no, his sixth chapter in A Dance of Dragons, where, there's, where Tyrion has this dream, right? And the dream goes like this. <clears throat> and this is interesting, so to kind of back this up a little bit, is that Tyrion, in the original reading of this chapter from uh, when George was reading it back in 2005, this quote was not actually in it. It's not recorded in any of the recountings that were done there. So the dream that Tyrion has is that, that night Tyrion Lannister dreamed of a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it, dealing death with an axe as big as he was, fighting side by side with Barristan the Bold and Bittersteel as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. So is that maybe indicating that Tyrion is seeing the potential that Barristan the Golden Company could align? Is that a prophetic dream at some level? Or is that just more like Tyrion just kind of incorporating some of the information he's learned from Illyrio um, in his journeys to the Roind and then just kind of that making himself out to be kind of this weird, psychotic, trippy dream that that Tyrion is having? I don't know. I I think Mm. you bring up a great point that Barristan may not necessarily be interested in joining up with someone who's backed by the Golden Company. But then at the same time, what if it's Rhaegar's son? And then we have the example of Kristen Cole, right, who is talking about the Andal tradition that the son is for the daughter, so all of these things, in my mind, this, this, is, this, this is why I love George R. Barton's work more than anything else, is that George derives his characters to their breaking point with the amount of conflict and the amount of different sides and determinations they have to make based on conflicting evidence that both appeals on like an objective level, but also appeals to the personal individual person of and Selmy. Will he back someone backed by the Golden Company? Well, he's also Rhaegar's son. Right. No, but I mean, right. And you know, that's that. It all drives to that ultimate conflict between the characters, and but internally, ultimately, is what George is driving at for Barristan. So, it's tough, man. I, it's really <laughs> tough.
1: Yeah, there's no great. There's no like certain answer here by any means. There's like you say, that's Barristan fighting alongside Bittersteel, that, and and Tyrion having two heads. Hello, Meili's Ma- the monstrous vibes. Um, <laughs> that, but. And that seems weird to have Tyrion interspersed in that because why would Tyrion be on that side of things? Hmm. So maybe it's suggesting the Golden Company comes sides with Danny after Aegon is set aside. But that would be kind of weird too. Why would she? <laughs> why would they do that? I mean, I guess I could see that if their only Dragon Claimant dies, they would be like, "Well, let's back this other Dragon Claimant." And but a dragon is uh, still a dragon right? It's what Illyro claims. But. Yeah. Now there's another potential piece of bad blood here. Barrison kills Simon Toyne, and there's Toynes in the in the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Golden Company too. So there's not just maylees and these other things, but eh, yeah, I don't know. That kind of thing might be set aside given these uh, l- much larger, more important political considerations and personal things. But bad blood is a that's people don't forget about that and. I got to figure at least a few members of the Golden Company are old enough to have been around then. Probably not very many, though, but, but, and they, they may be too few to make much difference, but I, I can't help but think about that and how that might be relevant. Yeah. Backing up a little bit, since we're, we're trying to wrap mm-hmm. all these guys together, we got Varus, we got Rhaegar, we got what Barrison believes, what he's going to be led to believe. Now, speaking of what they're led to believe and what backing up to Bar- Barrison's thoughts on Varus and his thoughts on Duskendale. Which, by the way, Kristen Cole, his camp, his brief time as a commander included going through Duskendale. So that's a nice little slight mm-hmm. parallel with dragons and stuff. So so yeah, what do you think about this? You you, you took a quote from the SoSpake Martin about George and Barristan, and that's a good spot for us to go next.
0: Yeah, so George in 2001. So this is a number of years before he decides to make Barrison a point-of-view character. As we know, George makes Barrison a point-of-view character in 2010 when he's writing A Dance with Dragons. So someone asks George whether Barrison, for his personality, and for being a member of the King's Guard, and for keeping the King's secrets, is he a good witness about Varas' influence over Varas? And George says, probably stroking his beard, of course, a witness, (laughs) certainly. A good witness? Well, there were things he was not privy to. And of course, he saw events from his own standpoint. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that Barristan's relationship to Varys and his knowledge of what Varys is up to is shaded a little bit. I, you kind of get the impression that Barristan wasn't necessarily privy to all of the worst things that Aerys II did, especially after he went on campaign with Rhaegar. He obviously doesn't know about the wildfire plot to blow up King's Landing. That's something only Jamie knows, and Jamie's is the sole witness of at this point. But he is a witness to a number of things that are going on with Aerys II Turk-Aryan. and Turgarian. And just to talk about a little bit some of these things, so we we do know, for instance, that you know Duskendale is a big part of what is animating Barrison's guilt over Eris the Second. But he also kind of like layers his guilt with his kind of ambiguity, right? As we're talking about Eris and Barrison, he's he says he stood stood saw and did nothing. And what exactly is he referring to? Well, we never actually learn. Besides Duskendale. But we, all, we know he was almost certainly present when the II burned Lord Rickard Stark to death while having Brandon slaughtered. I think it's mentioned that all of the are knights are present there, if I'm not mistaken.
1: hmm I think
0: so. And I will not be surprised if Barristan also stood a door, stood a door guard when Ares raped his wife, Rhaella. So yeah. Barristan tends to shroud a lot of these things and ambiguities and just kind of like, there were bad things that were happening, but I'm not going to think specifically about those specific bad things that were occurring at the same time. <laughs> I think it's an interesting part about Barristan as a character, right? And this is something we talked about at the beginning of this episode, about how Jamie kind of gets a little bit of a, a heel turn and that we understand and sympathize with him early on, uh, excuse me, later on after we get introduced to his point of view chapters. And it's a little bit different for Barrison when he becomes introduced as a point of view character. Do you feel like that Barristan became a little bit less white, less like shiny white and more gray as he became a point of view character to Dance with Dragons? Or do you, do you feel like more like connected to this guy and feel more sympathy for him?
1: I feel more sympathy for him and more connected to him and I think he's more gray. But I think that's part of it because we're all gray on some level. I mean, we're not all dark gray. You know, there's, there's varying shades of gray and I don't think Barrison's I certainly don't think Barrison's a bad guy. So I can understand the humanity and difficulty, like just all these things we're laying out that haven't even come for him yet. But the things that have come for him, like thinking about the him just agonizing over Duskendale, I sympathize with that. Like, what is he supposed to do there? <laughs> right. Um, and I sympathize with his things we talked about before about how his 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 talent really determined his life arc. Humanizing people includes accepting their flaws and understanding their flaws and maybe deciding, well, these flaws are too much for me and I don't like this guy anymore. But that did not happen with me in, in, in Barristan. When I saw inside his head, uh, I was surprised to get his POVs, but... <laughs> I think it's a really great
0: point. I mean, you, you brought up about, about how like, you get inside somebody's point of view and they become more gray, but also more humanized at the same time. I think that's something that uh, we should be taking when we're, we're encountering these point of views in, in A Song of Ice and Fire and then we're inside their head and they might be really terrible people like Theon or Victarion, Aaron Damper to a little bit of a lesser extent. Barristan Selmy seems to be this guy that's seemingly really good, but when we get his point of view, he becomes very much human. He becomes less of this kind of Figure that kind of exists in Danny's storyline, and a figure in his own right. And when we start to encounter him as a human being, there's something. There's 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 lots of layers that George has for Barrison, which makes him great, and I really enjoy his perspectives in *A Dance of Dragons*, for sure.
1: Yeah, right on. So uh, let's see here. Moving on a little bit, a uh, couple of comments before we can before we move on. Uh, Matt Reese says, "What if Barrison learns about R plus L equals J and heads north, leaving Young Griff and Danny to have their dance?" Well, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, he might think that Ray, yeah, if he goes, it's like, geez, another one? What am I, su- God, am I supposed to go follow Jon Snow now? Like, what the hell, man? Like, I think his head would explode at that point. Like, <laughs> he could. might, I'm, yeah, I'm done. He'll sprout a second head like Nailies and be like, yeah. you, you decide, second head.
0: <laughs> I- I think it's like I think it's similar to the kind of question like what if John Connington finds out about R plus L equals J will they then like abandon Young Grift and I I, I can see where there's value in that storytelling I just how do I how, I, I do I I see I feel like I say this a lot but how are you going to fit that storyline amidst all the other storylines George has to wrap up in just two books As George has been very yeah. clear There's only going to be two more books before he gets to the end of the series so I, I don't I don't know it's going to happen I think it'd be interesting but I'm I, I'm I'm more content thinking that John Connington and Barriston will die before learning about R plus L equals J. But we'll, we'll have to see, I guess. I think I that agree, John Connington yeah. will likely die knowing that young Griff is not actually Rhaegar's son. I think that's important for his narrative. But I, him mm. finding about R plus L equals J, on the other hand... Uh, to like kind of add on to that would be just a lot for the narrative to kind of take on.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you there. I think that's probably what's going to happen is he'll his his arc, his life will be resolved before Arpacelicus J comes onto the scene. It would as still be extra factor.
2: painful for him.
1: It would. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> he
2: learned that. He was like, I was it's like, God, the wrong kid. A- <laughs> <laughs> and his name is John.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, right.
2: <laughs> can you imagine if he does learn that Rhaegar's son's name is John? <sighs> <sighs> he would have no idea it was after John Aaron. He would he would truly think it was after himself, I think. Of course. Yeah.
0: Oh, Rhaegar's honoring me at long last by naming but then somebody would be like, Hey, actually, the Snowspike Martin says that John Snow was named after John Aaron. <laughs> John kind of be like, oh, oh man. Oh. Dang
1: it. <laughs> you have some other thoughts about Rhaegar here too because coming back to Duskendale a little bit, that's a particular thought about his guilt is that if he had allowed Ares to die by not performing this incredible feat of valor, which would be understandable if he hadn't performed this unbelievable commando raid, mm-hmm. people would like, hey, Barrison, why didn't you perform this amazing <laughs> commando raid to rescue Ares? That would never have happened. Ares would have been killed, and then Ra- Rhaegar becomes king, which is kind of what Tywin wanted. And you almost think, man, do we have to agree with Tywin here? But yeah. <laughs> Barristan's having that same thought. Not directly, maybe Tywin was right, but... Maybe it would have been better if he had just been like, uh, yeah, I got nothing. Let's just, we got to see what happens here. And that might be part of his undoing the past. The same kind of thing John Connington's trying to do is is fix his mistakes from before. So you could really see this being another thing pulling him in the direction of, oh, the Rhaegar's son, I can do it right this time. Yeah.
0: It's fascinating to me that that Barriston, when he comes to Danny's service in at the end of a Clash of Kings and on into a Storm of Swords, what he's constantly seeming to evaluate Danny on is whether she is actually Rhaegar's sister or Ares' daughter. And those seem to be the two precepts in his mind that determine whether you're good or you're bad. And yeah. for Barristan, he is a really big Rhaegar fanboy with an I at the end of it instead of a, of a, of a Y. <laughs> I mean, just like think about like in terms of like in contrast to Barrison's vague but negative memories of Eris, like oh, he did a lot of bad stuff, but I, I'm not going to focus on what exactly he did bad. He has very fond memories of Eris' son Rhaegar. I mean, he admires him when Danny asks him to tell him all the deeds that Rhaegar did, uh, or rather, she is she's asking about one day. You may, he must tell me all about her father. And then Barristan says, there is your grace of good things about him and those who came before him, your grandfather Jaheris and his brother and their father Aegon, your mother and Rhaegar, him most of all. So that's interesting is that Barristan seems to admire Rhaegar and put him on a pedestal above all the other Targaryens that he's encountered in his tenure as a Kingsguard. And then back when he was posing as Arson Whitebeard, Barristan said this about Rhaegar. Uh, He says that Rhaegar is able, that above all, determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded. So it's very clear that that Barristan has idealized Rhaegar. I think there's a a little bit of this kind of uh, nostalgia at work in in Barristan as he's reflecting back on Rhaegar. Because Rhaegar has a lot of greatness and ambiguities attached to him as well. And, And Barristan does think about those in his dance chapters. And then as, and finally, as we, we talk about Duskendale and why Barristan is so kind of torn up and conflicted about Duskendale, he's thinking about it in terms of Rhaegar. So he says this in the Queen's Guard chapter from A Dance of Dragons. If he had not gone into Duskendale to rescue Eris from Lord Darkland's dungeons, the king might well have died there as Tywin Lannister sacked the town. Prince Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne, mayhaps to heal the realm. I'm sorry, but I don't mean that. I mean the lap. Mayhaps to heal the realm. <laughs> Not sure that necessarily Rhaegar's ascension would have led to the healing of Westeros, but I do understand his perspective. And I do think that is flavored very strongly with that element of nostalgia, which is very strong for Barristan. If only he hadn't done his one good deed, then Rhaegar would have ascended to the Iron Throne and Westeros would have never fallen into war. All of the kingdoms wouldn't have rebelled against Arras and Barristan could have kept his honor and you know, actually served a good king. And that's consistently what, what Barristan is after. He is after serving a good king. He is tired of serving kings that are shitty, but he feels like he has to serve because he has made vows to that effect. He wants to serve Daenerys primarily because he used her initially in Storm and the Dance of Dragons as Rhaegar's sister as opposed to Aerys' daughter. And he also makes that thing about the coin flip, right? When the gods toss a coin <laughs> and land either on madness or sanity. I'm, I'm screwing up the quote a little bit, but that is essentially what Barrison's looking for. He's looking, he's tired of serving because he has to. He wants to serve because he wants to. And I think that's a good motivation on Barrison, but it might change about his conception of Danny when she returns in The Winds of Winter and whether she might resemble more of Eris's daughter as opposed to Rhaegar's sister. I think that's the determination that Barrison's likely going to make when she encounters him again come The Winds of
1: Winter. Right on. Well said. Barrison, the Kingbreaker, with Danny gone. Barristan assumes an uncomfortable position as not being part of his Dar's Kingsguard, part of the court, not something he's familiar with. He prefers swords and not spies. And this is not unlike Kristen Cole, uh, taking being Hand to the King while Aegon II is absent because he's badly wounded and no, no one knows where he is, which is very similar to Danny. No one knows where Danny is. At this part, they assume she's somewhere out on the Dothraki Sea and, or dead, mm-hmm. and that is accurate. So
0: it's interesting, Barrison, when he actually comes into his own, Dance of Dragons. His chapters start after Danny's departure at Daznak's pit. So it's always fascinating to me that George ended up structuring it this way, so that we have Barrison operating without a queen or a king to serve. Although Hissar keeps Barrison around because, at some level, I think he knows that he knows Barristan's quality as a warrior, even though he has his own guards that surround him, former pit fighters primarily. But that leads to Barrison being recruited by Skahaz Mokandak into the coup to unseat Hisdar. And then he convinces Barrison through a variety of means that it was Hisdar who tried to poison Danny, as a, which is the event that happened back at Desnex Pit. And this leads to Barrison then joining in with the coup in order to unseat Hisdar's Olorak. And then at the same time, all this is going on. Tensions between Yunkai and Marina are rising. And Barrison is a witness to Bloodbeard, who's a a great super minor character in the Dance of Dragons showing <laughs> yeah. up. Um, he, and Bloodbeer shows up and tosses the head of his friend Grolio at his first feet, If you guys remember from Clash, it was, his, it was Grolio who had transported Barristan and strong West to Carth, and then on to Slaver's Bay there afterwards. And so they had some sort of friendship in, uh, between the two of them. But the, the Yelkish kill him and this leads to increased tensions and they also demand that the dragons be destroyed, the last two that are in Marine. So then, thereafter, Barrison launches a coup alongside his Kahasmo and then unseats his star, and then kills Kroz in one of those famous moments from the Song of Ice and Fire, one of those famous duels, which, you know, kind of similar to Chris and Cole. Chris and Cole had a number of famous duels as well, yeah. and ended up killing a bunch of important people. But then the dragons are released by Quentin, the Sons of the Harpy, and they rise up. And then the Sons of the Harpy then rise up against Danny's people and Marine. And then that leads them to Dance of Dragons closes with Yunkai fling corpses to Marine and Barristan preparing to fight the Yunkish coalition outside the city walls. So, this is this is fascinating to me in that Barristan was never groomed to be in political leadership. He had always wanted for his entire life to be a Kingsguard knight, to live by the sword and to live honorably by the sword. But now he's being thrust into an uncomfortable role as being Danny's hand in her absence. And I think that's that's an interesting take because I think it's similar to Kristen Cole. He, he assumes the handship for a, for a brief time. So so I, mean, I think the, the comparisons are, are all there for these two characters and they... Barris is a unique and interesting character, and Kristen Cole is a unique and interesting character. I think that they both inform each other about what it means to be a Kingsguard knight and what it means to serve some regents who are maybe not for the best, or maybe will not turn out to be the best in terms of Barristan and Danny's relationship. as As the Dance of Dragons closes and the Winds of Winter starts off, Barristan is about to fa- is about to fight on Danny's behalf. But I do kind of wonder, like, will Barristan come out of winning the Battle of Fire and maybe regret his decisions as he starts to encounter that? Danny, who the type of character that Danny's going to be back in The Winds of Winter? I don't know. I'll, I'll turn it over to you because I've kind of droned on a little bit enough. I've droned enough already.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really good. Like you said, George is so, so good at delivering conflict. And when you have conflict that is argue, that argues really well for two different possibilities, it's impossible to to know for sure. I, I think the argument that Barristan could just die ignominiously, kind of like he did on TV against the Brazen Beasts or something like that, he could get murdered by Skahaz Mokandax, man. He could just go down like that. After all, Skahaz does not really agree with Barriston's methods. Um, and he probably has his own agenda as well. So, in fact, he very likely has an agenda and it doesn't really include Barristan, me. <laughs> So So, <laughs> uh, And Barristan is a bit of a target in that sense because he's not experienced in these whole types of political games. And like you said, he's just trying to Work his way into something that he can understand, like try to make it come to a conflict, because that's something he is comfortable with. He's comfortable with the sword in his hand and an enemy in front of him, and if things can be settled that way, he's much happier doing it that way. But will they be settled that way? Maybe partially, but mm-hmm. entirely? Yeah, I kind of doubt that. I-, I love that. I love that idea
0: that's in uh, Barrison's head as he's as he's talking, as he like trying to figure out the conspiracy that Scott's is presenting to him, and his head starts to hurt. And He's like, oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't even with these people. Like, come on. Like, can we just like get back to like the stuff that I actually understand, which is sword fighting and stuff like that? I mean, is not necessarily a dumb jock, although that he, we can see elements of that in his personality. He was not made for politics, but that's interesting when you actually throw him in the mix of these people who were made for politics, people like Scott House Molkandic, who seems very adept at playing the Marinese Game of Thrones. And likely in the Winds of Winter, Barris is going to be exposed once again to a character by the name of Tyrion Lancer. You might have heard of him. He is in the Song of Ice and Fire, I've heard once or twice.
1: Maybe. Sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, but, <laughs> but this guy is coming to Danny's side and he has a vital piece of information that no one else in Slaver's Bay and no one else in Danny's side possibly knows, with the exception of potentially Makoro, who's seen it in, his, in the fires in his dreams. That is, that there is a character that is claimed to be Aegon, the sixth Targaryen. And I do wonder what that is going to look like come the Winds of Winter when Tyrion. Is going to intersect with Danny, something that George has confirmed will happen in The Wind's Winter at some level. We don't know exactly what it's going to how, how exactly it's going to pan out. But what is that going to mean if Barrison is there in council session and he hears from Tyrion Lannister about Aegon the Six Targaryen being alive? Will he believe that this is actually Aegon the Six? Will he believe, will maybe Dan- Tyrion spin it to be that this is actually not Rhaegar's son? It's actually a, a Blackfire pretender or an imposter operating in it? I mean, Tyrion seems to indicate at some levels in A Dance of Dragons that he doesn't necessarily believe. That young Grift is Aegon the Sixth, although that's a little bit ambiguous. But what is actually going to be Barrison's take when he hears this information from Tyrion Lannister? Because again, I think this is going to be a big part of why these two characters intersect and what their conversation is going to be about. I think it's going, going to be the means by Tyrion, means by which Tyrion worms his way into Danny's side, but it's also going to have impacts and ramifications for the characters that are surrounding Danny from Jorah Mormon, who could be there to especially Barrison Selmy for sure.
1: That's a great point because you wonder how some of these secondary characters will influence the decisions of someone like Barristan not calling it. Well, Tyrion maybe isn't a secondary character, but he, the way he tells this story to Barristan, he's very convincing, very cunning. He could maybe get Barristan to think a certain way that if someone else brought this information to Barristan, it might go differently. But Tyrion is, is extremely good at, at understanding perspective and which information to hold back and which information to tell to, to get people to do what he wants. He's obviously just great with his, with his talking. And so, yeah, but that also, if we pair that up against a, co- a comparison to someone, say, like, John Connington. Well, what if mm-hmm. Barristan meets John Connington somehow and then hears his side of things? And uh, uh, yeah, like, what will Tyrion tell? Will, Bear, will he tell Barristan his suspicions? Like, I don't think that's Rhaegar's kid. Because mm. that would be a huge deal to Barristan to think, to put some doubt you know, if Barrison jumps ship because he thinks that's Rhaegar's kid, well, what if there's doubt? What if what if Tyrion sows the seed of doubt there? What if Varys and Illyria's ability to co-opt symbols to to give the yes. realm the idea that this is truly Rhaegar's son is successful? Like, what if he has Darkstar wielding Dawn at his side? Just like Arthur Dane had, was at Rhaegar's side with Dawn. That would just scream... Uh, legitimacy. And what if he has fire? I mean, come on, that's going to be just so powerful mm-hmm. as a symbol. People are going to just flock to his banners and Barristan might be one of them. But if Tyrion undermines that, this is so hard to see uh, which story Barristan will believe if he even hears multiple stories. <laughs> so boy, you're right, it's tricky. What we can do is we answer questions, but we probably create more questions yeah, than we answer. <laughs> right.
0: It's it's so complex. I I feel like that that a lot of these themes and these storylines, they feel kind of secondary to the plot of John and Danny and Tyrion. But I, I don't feel that way. I think that George has done a fantastic job of interweaving all of these the 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 conflicts of the various characters like Barristan are facing, that John Connington are facing, that Arianne Martell is facing. And those kind of impact the main storylines and become integral to those main storylines or so-called main storylines. And I think that's important when we're talking about, and we're probably getting to the close of this episode, is, this, is that we have this concept that there are no unimportant storylines in A Song of Ice and Fire, except maybe Arizo Cart. But even his is a little bit important.
1: <laughs> and
0: Barristan... Barristan's I mean,
2: just to cut in, I just have to say that it shows that they're all part of the same story. Yeah. They're all the same storyline. Ultimately, when it's all said and done, they all contribute to it. They're all part of the song. Yeah, I that's a know. good
1: point. Aries O'Cart is, Aries is like Barriston as a young man. Yes. I think of him like very similarly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's, you guys were comparing him to Kristen too, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the title of the chapter. Like yeah. you mentioned that. But yes, like he's important. Yes. He he not as much, but.
1: Yeah, he is. You know, uh, least important doesn't mean unimportant. Yeah, I mean they're, they're, <laughs> these characters are important.
0: I think it also like feeds back into the history part of it too, and that there is no unimportant history. It's all feeding the main story, and the main story is feeding the history. George's really does a really fantastic job of creating character archetypes in the history of the World of Ice and Fire, and in Fire, especially in Fire and Blood, Volume One, that inform the modern context of the five main books. We've got characters that are representing. People from like Tyrion, you know, we've got characters like Kristen Cole that are archetypes for Barriston. We've got so much of these elements that are really, really helping to inform the main story. And I'm just trying to pull up a quote here as I try and stall for time from, from Aegon <laughs> II and what he's going to be and why a character like Kristen Cole might be attracted to him and, and backing him. Even if he had personal reasons, there were also some elements about Aegon II that were important for him. He had the symbols of legitimacy, as Fireblood says. Every visible symbol of legitimacy belonged to Aegon. He sat the Iron Throne. He lived in the Red Keep. He wore the Conqueror's crown, wielded the Conqueror's sword and had anointed and had been anointed by a septum of the faith before the eyes of tens of thousands. Grand Master Orwell sat in his councils and the Lord Queen of the Guard, had placed the crown upon his princely head. And he was male, which in the eyes of many made him the rightful king, his half-sister, the usurper. Well, I mean, isn't that basically the story that's going to unfold in The Wind's Winter between Daenerys and young Griff right there is basically fire and blood showing us the type of story that's yep. going to happen. <laughs> I mean, uh, George has kind of already said what's ha- what's going to happen between these two Targaryen claimants. And I think that Aegon in the form of young Griff is going to have a lot of the symbols of legitimacy. He'll have the faith of the seven. He'll have the armies. He'll have the backing of many noble lords. And he could potentially have the former Lord Commander of the Kingsguard riding into the rescue and placing the crown upon his head. I think that would be a fitting and beautiful way of symbolizing Aegon's perceived legitimacy, even if he's not actually legitimate
1: I totally agree That's that's um, maybe if we for us to hope for that to specifically happen, maybe too much, but it would fit so well, and I could see it that or something like it happening. I honestly didn't consider the possibility of Barrison himself placing the crown on Aegon's head just like Kristen Cole did, but boy, that would fit super well. Mm-hmm. It would be really synchronous uh, quite quite awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that does it for today. We covered a lot. Uh, we didn't quite cover everything we wanted to, but we, we knew that would happen. That's always the nature of it. I'll come back with this Barristan uh, Serwin of the Mirror Shield Kristen Cole thing some other time. We'll figure out a way to present that. It's really good. It's really, really good. So we'll at least tease that for y'all. And um, so Jeff, please tell everyone again, remind them where to find you guys. So uh, first of all, I want to say thank
0: you so much for for having me on. I I, I feel like that that same sort of embarrassing sense of nostalgia when I we doing this live cast because as,
1: <laughs> you know it was like back
0: in 2013 I was this I was still in my 20s at that point and we did you know those three Battle of Ice episodes okay. and I, I can't thank you and a shade enough for uh, kind of bringing me into the into the fandom in in a way that kind of expanded beyond Reddit and these different places and I, I really appreciate that and that's uh, you guys will be my lifelong friends for many reasons but among them being that reason for sure so thank you.
1: Yeah, well, thank you as well, man. Thanks for saying that. We appreciate it. And you're, you have earned it all. Thanks, you're, you're such a huge part of this community. You guys put out so much amazing stuff, and I get so many inspirations from y'all. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that so, so much. Um, yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, you could
0: find me as at Brendan Beefish on Reddit. Probably don't want to follow me. i probably have the worst Twitter account <laughs> in, in human history, according to some. Um, probably true. I concur. Yeah. Shay will, yeah. <laughs> Shay will tell you. Let, <laughs> don't, follow me on, don't follow me on Twitter at B. Fish. Um <laughs> But I'm also on Reddit as B. Fish as well. And you can uh, email us at the Not a Cast podcast at notacastasof at gmail.com. It's usually, I'm going to read that part. So I had to, uh, to kind of think about it for a second. So uh, we're doing,
2: as, as we were saying at the
0: beginning of the episode, we're going chapter by chapter one, one week at a time going through uh, this chapter analysis. Uh, and right now, we just finished the first part of Catlin 3, which is the famous parlay scene between Stannis and Renly. Uh, we just got to the point where uh, Renly's about to show up. We just got, really, it's its such a dense chapter. And, and uh, George does amazing work of doing a lot of the groundwork and foreshadowing that's going to end up animating oh, yeah. so much of what's going to happen down in the Stormlands come the Wind's Winter for sure. And just these two chapters, Catlin 3 and Catelyn 4, as well as Davos 2 later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where I do that. I Do that with with Emmett, uh, aka Poor Quentin, which is a uh, a lot of fun. He's the he's the uh, the nice one of of the podcast, which is uh, lovely and <laughs> a smart one too. So I have both of that
1: going for him. <laughs> and he's also the one that's done more. You're on cosplay, yes, which was was super important. of for course. What
2: cosplay have you even done, Jeff? <laughs> Call me. When you've done a Blackfish
0: cosplay, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I don't do cosplay. Um.
2: But you, if you did, you would do Blackfish, huh? I don't know who
0: I do. I, I do Kristen Cole. That's who, that's who I cosplay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay.
2: I also would be remiss if I did not mention what a star your daughter is. Lots oh, of people yeah. Commented, already got a post in our Facebook group from nice. Amy Landtrip about what a joy it was. What so, a surprise. Nice I'll let them know.
1: I, I, I'll have to say that she's totally beaten you in terms of like getting on the history of restros podcast at an earlier age than you. You, you said you got on in your twenties, but she did it yeah. at three. Is she three? She is three. Yes, yeah. so the <laughs> oldest three. And the, I don't
0: know if you saw, but the youngest one came by, came up too. So she was standing. I, I couldn't
1: right. actually see you guys. I could only hear it.
2: Yeah, he oh, can't okay. see a thing.
1: Oh, I should have oriented the camera. But yeah, but she was down that way. Was, well, uh, they,
2: everyone else can see you. Everyone yeah. else
1: can see. Yeah, I just I just don't have, I can't see you at all. I I have only the document in front of me. <laughs> 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 but I'll look at the. I can watch the video later. I'll look. And Now I have a good reason to look. You know, if it was just to see you, I, you oh know, yeah, I just see your daughter. Like that 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 you
2: didn't actually. Like it just took me a second to, for that to click that you didn't see daughter. <laughs> right,
1: I heard her though. I heard that cuteness. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you have to you have to look back. She was very interested. She wanted
0: to know who my friends were. uh, that's great
2: you mean your neighbors (laughs) Cool, my neighbors
1: right neighbors yeah (laughs) (laughs) well thank you very much Jeff for coming this was awesome and I thank uh, Shea for all her excellence on uh, handling things handling the stream handling all all the comments
2: they bow and they go your excellence
1: (laughs) (laughs) Shea is the best the best best yeah um, it almost <laughs> sounds like pestilence which is okay. not the kind of yeah, word I was about to forward. say not
2: right now at least <laughs> not in this climate
1: <laughs> not at all that's not even funny yeah okay so let's say thanks to our patron supporters and everybody else who helped all of you, a lot of you guys sent questions today comments there's a pretty seems like the chat was particularly active I guess you you all particularly like this topic and so do we so we were really happy to to get to do it it was super fun and we'll catch you all next time. We have, of course, our recurring Valor Veritas every Sunday. Game streams Wednesday and Friday for the time being. And the occasional other streams on Tuesdays or Saturdays that we will announce ahead of time when we have them. And don't forget to check out the new uh, Witcher podcast that I'm doing with Kyle uh, Foster and Nicole Schick. That should have its first episode. It has its trailer episode out as of this moment. So you can at least get a sense of what we're all about. But the first real episode is an out- It will be out in just a few days. Alright, thanks to our peers of the realm Lord Stephen Stark Titles, Titles, Hand of the Queen Who is known, Hand of Queen Asheia Who is known as the best Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire Is the Warden of the West Lord George Stormsville the Cunning Is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East Cabethian Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks And Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods And Warden of the North Lord Brendan Lannister is the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everor and Warden of the South The Mysterious BR is our Hand of the King. Elite from outside the realm include Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. I suppose he would be on Team Rhaenyra very clearly. He is uh, not a fan of the idea of Barristan uh, switching sides. I think he would prefer to see uh, Barristan... He would sink Barristan's ship if he's heading to Westeros to switch sides. That's what we would see the King of Stepstones do here King beyond the wall, Sydney Jassy the fallborn, lord of Blue Spring in the haunted forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade Red Frost. He thinks these guys should come beyond the wall to settle their differences. You're not a, it's not a real war unless it's fought in ice cold. Lady Sarah Connolly the willful is wit beyond measure, is man's greatest treasure. Jenny's patron. Well, we I finally delivered for you, Jenny's patron. <laughs> Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships. Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws. Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin. Lord Johan of House Orkos, called Shadowhawk, is Master of Whispers. Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawke's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, um, excuse me, Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemi Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise, sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The the Bastard of the Wolves. Also, that one has taught me to speak better because it's so hard to say. You know, that one just makes you better at speaking, doing that one over and over. <laughs> so thanks, Lord Bemmy, <laughs> The mass bastard of the Wolf's Wood, first forester of the Old Gods is sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Lady Leona Kelly of Wolf Island is protectors of the Steelhold. Casey Stark of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is lady of Earth Dog, Huntress of the Wolf's Wood, and guardian of Maddie Squirrels Bane, the Mighty Direwing. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shot in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy, the steady wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council. Is led by Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, backed by Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat, in the shadows we bear our claws. Catrin of the Wise of House Trondheim is Master Coin. Maester M. Elizabeth is middle daughter of Lady Liana Mormont, Lurst Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. Laura Boros is the Lady of Infinity and Master of Laws. Our King's Guard includes Lord Miriam, uh, Lord Commander. Sir Glennon of House Leanne is called Lioncloak, longest tenured white sword. Sir Dean the White is Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi is the Beverage Knight. Gregor Snow is called Snow Bear, a Bastard of Winterfell. Sir Jen Seaworth is Knight of the Southern Snows, and Lisa is Water Witch of Dorn. A Red Wedding Band is led by Sir Newt of the Rock, wielding Dweamer note. A weirwood lute with Valyrian steel strings. That is a fancy instrument. Our Queen's Guard includes Lord Captain Commander Hama Helmand, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Sir Rambo is Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, Wielder of the Twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Wherewood Bow, Rain. Amber the Adamant is Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin. And Nora Necco. Then... Uh, our beard guard, Lord Commander George the Golden, heads it up. Backed by Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak. Lady Rita of the Copper Mane, the Unbound. Dance, the Fervor. Sir Jeff Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad. The multifaceted beard of platinum, red and brown. Stay frosty. And Sir Tim Gorgyle, Boy of the Western Desert. Now, last but not least, our history of Westeros Night's Watch, which is led by... See, I always do the same thing you say, Jeff. I'm scrolling towards that, so I have to, like, fill in that space to find it. Lord... Com- <laughs> yeah, podcaster's trick. Yeah, babble till you find what you were looking for. Lord Commander Benjamin Umber. The Silent Giant is wielder of the Valyrian Great Sword, Winter's Kiss. First Builder, Megor Snow, a.k.a. Megor the Cool, is the fire in the snow. First ranger, Sir Sorce Delica, is of House Gramercy. And first steward, Jacob Storm, called Steel Spine, is the bastard of, appropriately enough, Blackhaven. All right. So that's it, everybody. Thanks again to Jeff. Thanks again to Ashea. Thanks to everybody who came live. Thanks to everybody who likes and shares and uh, tells their friends about our podcast or supports us on Patreon. You are the real MVPs. And we will see you next time for more History of Westeros. Valar, we
2: Good night. There's another strong
1: woman. Yeah, there's a strong another woman. Another strong woman,
2: yeah. <laughs> What? What,
1: do I have the headphones on? Because
0: I'm recording an episode. <laughs> you want to say hi to everyone? Hi. You want to say hi to everyone? No, it's okay. I love you. It's my friends. Aziz and Ashea and about 7,000 other people. <laughs>
1: Daddy. Oh. Hello. Can I talk friends? Sure. You want to say hi? <laughs> Who are they?
0: They're just. You want to say hi? Or you want to go to night night?
1: Hiya. Hi. <laughs> Who are they?
0: They're they're right there. You want to see see them on the screen? There's Aziz, <laughs> my friend Aziz.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good All
0: right, girls. <laughs> I love you. <laughs>
2: Hi, Night, night, Julia. to This is girl. <laughs> <laughs> the sons,
1: This is the best interruption we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sorry, yeah.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>